Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible. All I ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Now let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. My guest today is named Phil Plascota, and he's a musician, engineer, mixer, and producer from Florida who started as a guitar player, but he became known as the dude to go to for gigantic and punishing guitar tones. Uh, he's basically a reamping king and a pretty good mixer too, and an awesome dude. He has worked with a whole host of acts such as Abiotic, Thyart is Murder, and a ton more. Really, really awesome dude. This episode has been a long time coming. I present you Phil Plascota. Phil Plascota, welcome to the URM podcast. What is up, AL? You know, just a quarantine life. And uh, today we're getting tornadoes added onto that. So that'll be really cool. Yeah, we all we know about all the, uh, the weather stuff living in Florida. Yeah, I do. So I'm prepared. It's going to be a bunch of long track tornadoes. It's supposed to be an outbreak across the entire Southeast. So I'm ready. Florida got me ready for that. Oh yeah, for sure. Hurricanes around here get everybody ready for that. It's not just hurricanes, man. It's the 3 p.m. storms from hell Yeah, that hit between March and October. Oh yeah, those things come in like crazy. Like all of a sudden it'll be fine and then it's just like a typhoon outside. Yeah, do you shut your studio down? Yeah, every single time. As soon as I start hearing cracks of lightning, I'm like, all right, I got to turn everything off. So when I lived there, I had an app called Lightning App and it would tell me, I would choose a radius basically. And as soon as a lightning strike was detected, I would put it to 50 miles and the moment that lightning started coming down, it would also tell me which direction it was going in. If it was coming towards me, mm -hmm. I'd wait till it was 10 miles and then unplug everything. I need to get that app because I just listen. I just No, you need the app. As soon as I hear crack, I'm like, oh, all right, it's really close. Okay, so I know you're not in Orlando, but Orlando is the lightning strike capital of the entire United States. 19,000 on average per year, cloud to ground, Okay. You're not that far. No, I'm not that far. I'm only like three hours away from there, but we get some pretty intense lightning over in uh, the Fort Myers Cape Coral area. I know. That's what I'm saying. You should get this app. Yeah, you'll have to send me a link to that after yeah. we're done with this. I've got two. I've got one that's an aviation radar. I'm crazy about this kind of stuff, but... uh Hey, man, you don't want your stuff to get fried. We have thousands and thousands of dollars worth of stuff. One lightning strike can take everything out. It's happened. 
Yeah. That's why it happened to me in 2005. So I know the realities of it. It's not fun. It happened during a session. That's even worse. Yeah. Well, the good thing about it was, so I was working on two bands at the time. One was with me and the other one I was mixing. Mm -hmm. The one that was with me, they were there. And so they understood. And I told them, look, we'll just start from scratch once I get some gear. (laughs) Because it was all destroyed. We didn't have cloud recording you know, backups in that day. Right, right. And it was that one point in the day when all my drives were hooked up for backups. Oh, God. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it always happens that way. As soon as you're ready to yeah. do something, all hell has to break loose. Dude, perfect timing. So, yeah, the one band that was there, they understood. I re-recorded them for free. We were all the way up to the guitar tracking stage, so we just started over. Other band was mixing. They thought I was making an excuse, and they fired me. Yeah, I've had some experiences like that before. Where they think you're lying about an excuse, or you think somebody else is lying about an excuse, or both. Lying about an excuse, but it was never me that was making the excuses. But I've been there before with that type of situation. Where something real happened to you? Oh, yeah. And nobody believed you? Exactly. I mean, hey, my studio got struck by lightning and everything blew up. Your album's gone. That was like my old studio uh, before I'm in the spot I'm in now. Our uh, water heater actually exploded and flooded our entire studio. How deep? It was a good probably foot and a half of water. Thankfully, oh, like shit. I had all of my important stuff way off the ground because I've always used like some sort of amp stand for my amps and then always had yeah. all of my rack gear and high racks. So I never really had much on the floor. Like I think I lost maybe a couple pedals in one sub. Man, you are lucky. Yeah. I know people like when Hurricane, I think it was Sandy, which is the one that hit New York. I think that was Sandy. I think it was Sandy who had studios and basements or whatever. Oh shit. I bet their stuff got fucking wrecked. Yes, they got wrecked. Man, I had once in Florida where a toilet exploded. Thankfully, not the sewage part, the water part. Okay. Okay. And yeah, so thank God for that. That would be a whole different story if that had happened, but it flooded. You had been to my house. Yes. So you know where that guest bathroom was right next to the control room? Yeah. Was it that one? That one. Oh, man. So it flooded the control room and flooded all the way to the entrance and part of the drum room. Wow. About an inch. Yeah, I know how close everything was to that bathroom, so. Yeah, but yeah, dude, it kind of sucked. It was about an inch of water, not a foot and a half. A foot and a half would have been deadly because that would have gotten to my battery backups. Yeah, thankfully the spot that I was in, all the wall outlets were super high up on the walls because whoever had built that place out, I don't know why they had the- Anticipated the ocean rising. (laughs) I guess because all of the power outlets were super high up on the walls, which I'd never seen before. So I was very lucky on that as well because nothing touched any of my power in that room. That is a very fortunate situation. Yeah, I seem to have good luck when it comes to catastrophic things happening to me. Knock on fake wood. Yeah, knock on fake wood. But you've had other people give you excuses like that where you didn't believe them? Oh, yeah. Like, um, I've had guys yeah. where, like, I never believe anybody. <laughs> no, no. Especially, like, if it's something silly, like, um, if I've sent stuff out for editing and it's taken, like, more than, like, three to four days to get tracks back, I'm like, come on. I know you're doing other things because I can obviously see that you're posting a lot on Facebook looking for more work. So I know you're not that busy. 
Man, one of the funniest things was, so I had this band from Australia come in. Again, we're talking about ancient history because I haven't recorded in a long time. But band from Australia came in. They needed help with their songs. There was a dude from a famous band that lived nearby. I'm not going to say which band. He was an ex-member that helped this band write a lot of their songs. Mm -hmm. And uh, a very talented guy. But he's not in the band anymore because he's fucking crazy and completely unreliable. That sounds familiar. <laughs> Nobody told me that. This is a big, big band, by the way. Okay. So he's really, really good. We hired him to help finish out the songs. Thought it was going to be awesome. He was going to come to my place and like spend like two days or three days working on their songs. He just didn't show up. I get a text 45 minutes late, which is like, bro, 102 fever, sorry. Later on that day on Instagram, I see a picture of him at the park with his dog throwing a Frisbee. Nice fever, bro. <laughs> nice fever, dude. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm an asshole, but I generally don't believe people. So that's why when the lightning hit me and they fired me, I kind of just understood. I was like, yeah, you don't believe me. You think I'm making this up. And honestly, I would too. So Yeah. Not just from like past experiences of dealing with, you know, older partners and stuff like that with the studio. I'm just so used to people being full of shit that I almost always think people are full of shit when they have excuses. So I barely ever have an excuse for anything. I'm always trying to be like super on top of everything I do. I'm going to admit something terrible. So when somebody gives me an excuse, like that's bad. Mm -hmm. Like there's part of me that's like, wow, I hope that's not true. Like, but what is it? I do I, because I don't want something bad to happen to them. Right, right. But then at the same time, I don't want them to be lying to me. Which do you prefer for the bad thing to have actually happened to them or for nothing bad to have happened to them, but them just be liars? It's like a moral dilemma. I don't know how to feel about it. It really is. Cause like if it did happen, you're like, holy shit, this guy just went through hell. But if he's lying, then you're like, what kind of dude is going to lie about this particular Subject. Yeah. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> I know that when I went to Berkeley, my grandmother must have died about six different times when <laughs> when I had to hand in certain assignments. Bas basically, you turned into the reanimator while you're at Berkeley. Basically. I mean, at least it wasn't with the same professor. Well, that's good. Yeah. But my grandmother did die six times. So... <laughs> I just felt like nobody was going to question that one. No, no, no. Whenever you uh, say a, a death happened in the family, that's pretty serious. No one's ever going to really question that. I've never uh, used a death as an excuse for anything. The only time I've ever had an actual legitimate excuse for not doing work was two months ago when I got super, super sick. But even still, I still tried to do my best to work and get stuff done. That's good. I actually did use the death excuse for real once. The person didn't believe me. So when my grandmother was actually dying, she was from Mexico. I was in Mexico for several weeks Right at the end there. And I had a client who was, she was an asshole. Like this client was a serious asshole with like real mental problems. She wanted to know why I wasn't responding to her texts about uh -huh. stupid ideas she had for her shitty black metal project. Like, I was like, I'm sorry, I'd, I'm not trying to ignore you or whatever. I'm in Mexico right now. My grandmother is like a few days away from death. Uh, I'm kind of dealing with family stuff, but I'll get back to you when I can. And her response was like, I am so sick of people making excuses about my music, blah, 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 blah. I was like, okay, 
luck. The end. <laughs> <laughs> no, like with past experience I've had with other people making excuses was like when I had my old partner, him say like our monitors blew up or our computer blew up or our interface burnt out, stuff like that. And then bands would hit me up and be like, hey, did your guys' stuff blow up? I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Oh, your old partner would say that to people, right? Yeah, he would literally say that to people. Can we talk about that for a second? We, we don't need to drop names. Yeah, we won't, we won't drop names, but yeah, we can definitely talk about that. Okay, I want to talk about that because I think that your situation is very relatable to lots of our listeners. I think that you're somebody that our listeners should pay attention to because you have managed to make a career for yourself in recording in a very realistic way, which I think is very, very cool. And you've had some trials and tribulations along the way, just like all of us. But the thing is that most people I know, if they had gone through what you went through, that would have been it. They would have gone back to the real world. They wouldn't be here five years later because this was about five years ago, right? Or more. Yeah, exactly. It's been about five years since I split off and has been doing my own thing since. Yeah, because I remember that you were going through that around the time that I left Florida and started URM. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was a huge shithole nightmare for me during that time. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I think that a lot of people who are wanting to get into the studio world, and I know this because they tell me, oftentimes they will not have much money, so they'll have a quote-unquote partner mm -hmm. who has more money or something, but doesn't yeah. really know what they're doing. Or they'll have somebody else that they're doing it with. Even They might not have a lot more money, but they have enough to where pooled resources, they can have a studio together. And it's not the most ideal situation, but it's better than nothing. So often it's people's first step into getting out of the bedroom, basically, is having a partner who is the first person available. Yeah, exactly. And that's pretty much how it like went with me was um, I'd known this guy for a while beforehand because you know he used to mix my band's stuff. Mm-hmm. And he'd also had a, a pretty reputable name for himself started already with, you know, working on like the original like Whitechapel demos and all that stuff. So he just hit me up one day and was like, hey, do you want to, you know, put a studio together? And I was like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing, but yeah, sure. That'd be cool. Why did he hit you up? He hit me up because um, I'd been talking to him a little bit because um, I had gotten a small little recording rig just to start doing demos and stuff for my band. He saw that I'd you know, bought some pretty decent stuff. And uh, he had just come back from out of town from moving out of Florida and he didn't have anything anymore. So he saw that I was super, super interested in recording. And basically the whole thing was, if we start a studio together, I can learn off of him. And, you know, that was basically the whole premise of us starting the studio together. He brings the skills, you bring the gear. Exactly. So yeah, that's exactly the kind of scenario I'm talking about. Somebody has something that the other person doesn't. Yeah, he was the name, I was the money yeah. at that time. Okay. What's interesting here though is typically the one with the name is the one that's not the flake. It's In these scenarios, usually it's the money guy that's the fuck up. Exactly, and this was the complete opposite of that. Yeah, I remember... I was talking to a URM student who was getting a money guy about a year ago. Something about it was raising red flags to him. And that's why he wanted to talk to me about it. The dude had zero production experience other than Reaper and he wrote some beats. This other guy had been recording for like five or six years. Mm -hmm. And the money guy wanted to 
get this contract where since he's putting in all the money, everything that the recording guy did was owned by him. Oh my God. Kind of weird. Yeah, that's definitely something I would never want to see in a contract. Yeah, so instantly shady. Yeah, that's super shady. I got the impression that what this money guy was going to do was he was going to try to exploit this other guy who had the skills, going to try to exploit him and bring some credibility to himself and then own everything and take credit. I've seen those situations happen before to some other engineer friends of mine. Yeah, I know people who have been accused of that too, the, where it's not true. But uh, I have seen it happen. So I told the guy to think real hard about whether or not he wants to be involved in that. So play it out. What I like to do when I'm getting involved with people, which I should have done in the past, but uh, I didn't. And it's this big dilemma or big debate I have with myself, which is some scenarios I've been in that have gone south actually enabled me to move forward. Mm -hmm. Even though I knew getting in that they were going to be kind of shady and had the potential to fall apart, I didn't listen to reason because I thought that the benefit would outweigh even if it did fall apart. And then when it did fall apart, the benefit did outweigh it. But I never went in blind, but I wonder if I could have saved myself a lot of pain by listening to myself and those red flags. Yeah, most of the time your gut is never wrong. Like I know every time I had a bad gut feeling about like what I was going through with my old partner, I was 100% correct every time. But because I was such good friends with him and you know I didn't want to believe that he was as shady as he was, that I just kept doing it anyway. What kind of stuff? Oh man, like even when we're like working on projects together, he would be, you know, at our studio the entire day. I was still working my day job that I still have. So I'd be working all day and I would come home to, you know, pick up the slack of wherever, you know, he left off from tracking a band. I'd get there and nothing had been done. And he would <laughs> come up with some excuse that, you know, he wasn't in the zone. He wasn't feeling it today. Was the band sitting around the whole time? Yes. Yeah. Basically they were waiting oh, for no. me to get back so I could start working with, with them because I was the only one getting anything done. Oh man, I've seen that situation before. I've seen that situation with really established producers who got lazy. I'm not going to name who, you probably know them, but like I can think of one who used to have a huge career. One day he said to me, I don't need to work hard because I've made it. That's like the worst attitude in the world to have. Yeah, that's like, that, that right there is famous last words. Yeah, for sure. I don't need to work hard because I already made it. What ended up happening was, he would fuck around all day and his assistant would then end up tracking all the bands. Years went by. Guess who ended up with all the bands? The assistant. Of course. <laughs> That's how it works. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. So the bands were work were sitting around all day waiting for you to get back. Was it like you're at work, you're expecting them to be at a certain point and you to walk in and like basically take the ball the rest of the way to the touchdown, but like you get there and nothing has happened? Yeah, literally, uh, we'd be at the same point where we're at the night before when I was finished doing stuff. What was the vibe when you would walk in on that? The vibe was the band was just like, we don't know what the fuck is going on. We just want to like record our shit and get this done and over with. Because like, you know, when you have 12 to 14 hours in a day to do stuff with bands, they're expecting to at least get four to six hours worth of work done in that day. And I just get back yeah. and the bands just be looking at me like, dude, we haven't even seen 
this guy all day. What's going on? I'm like, dude, I don't know. I've been at work. Like, where are we at? And they're like, well, we left off last night. And I'm like, oh, so you guys literally did nothing all day. They're like, yeah, well, we, we didn't want to bother him. He said he wasn't in the mood. I was like, oh, all right, no problem. Well, let's just get to work then. I am in the mood, <laughs> basically. Would they be pissed? Would it be like walking into like a bad vibe and then you need to reset the vibe? Or would they just be thankful that you got there and... Oh, no, they were super pissed every single yeah, time. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, so basically I'd be going into a hostile like work environment instantly. But then like after an hour of like, you know, working with them and tracking their stuff and joking around with them, then the vibe would go back to normal. But it was literally an everyday thing where I'd have to, you know, basically massage the band into being happy again. I think that that is actually one of the most important skills you can develop as an engineer is how to deal with people, especially when they're uh, stressing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because if you, if you don't deal well with stressed out people and you get instantly stressed out when someone else is stressed out, it's just going to make for a really terrible experience for both of you. Yeah, it's going to add fuel to that fire for sure. Yeah. So how would you go about setting their minds at ease? Um, basically, I would just try to figure out things that they liked just from like small conversations with them and just kind of like distract their mind from the fact that they'd been sitting around for the last like eight to 10 hours doing nothing. So I would just talk about topics that I knew that they would like to talk about outside of recording their album. Makes sense. And then, you know, what's interesting to me, like I'm thinking about fights with an ex or something, because I'm thinking of something heated, right? Like right. Uh, something that involves emotions. I'm not the kind of person that gets mad very easily, but like, so I'm trying to think of what is a scenario where things could spiral because of emotional factors. And Okay, so fights with an ex. One thing that I always noticed, though, is if there was a fight, the number one way to fix it is just talk. Yeah. Like human beings. And even if you talk about the problem, eventually you're going to start going in circles and you'll both get bored and start talking about something else. And 20 minutes later, it's like the fight never even happened. Exactly. That's actually how I would deal with stressed out bands too. Yeah, it just works out really, really well. And then also like I always had, you know, video game systems and stuff like that set up for them. So keep them busy whenever like they had nothing to do. So time would go by a little bit quicker and they can just distract themselves. Yeah. Because, you know, Call of Duty and uh, sports games completely negate most bands' thought process. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Yeah, as soon as they start playing Deathmatch and they get super into it, hours will go by and they don't even know what's going on. Man, I wish I could still play video games. <laughs> Same. For whatever reason, like, after I started getting, like, super involved in audio, like, I just don't have the patience to sit down and play video games for hours and hours on end. Yeah. Because all, all I think about is what I could be doing productive. Same here. So I used to love them. When I was a teenager, sometimes I would like, you know, stay up all night playing a game, then go to school, then come back and keep playing and stay up all night. I loved them for a long time, but then kind of around the time that the band started getting label interest, some switch flipped to where I just couldn't sit there and do it. Like, cause my mind kept on flooding with, well, there's 17 things that are really important that you need to do. What are you doing? Who cares about the headshot? Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. that's all I would think about. Is like, oh shit, you know, as soon as I sit down and play a video game, I'm like, oh, I got to get a mixed revision off to a band. So I, I, I'll play video games later. And then later never comes. And I just keep working. Yeah. 
I, I feel your pain. So what other kind of stuff happened with this partner? Um, it's a pretty detailed story. Yeah. Ah, oh, man. Like, besides all the things with, like, you know, excuses during making records and stuff like that, we would always take projects on ourselves, like, if we weren't tracking. Like, if we were tracking a band, we'd usually do that as a team. I would track, edit, reamp, he would mix. But then we would have our own mixing projects we would take on. So I never knew what he was working on outside of what we would take on together. So this is, like, about towards the end of when we split off. Like, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I started getting emails and messages from bands who were super, super pissed off at my old partner and like huge detailed list about all the things he was, you know, making excuses about, you know, they wanted their records, you know, they'd paid him extra money to do, you know, extra work and stuff. Cause he said like, you know, he needed extra gear to get stuff done. And on top of that, he was buying and selling gear that he technically didn't have to other engineers. Hold on. Let me make sure I understand. So number one, he was, Charging extra money for extra services, basically convincing the bands that in order to get done, they needed to do stuff that was not originally anticipated and so needed more money. Yes. And sometimes he would say, I need a piece of gear to be able to finish this project. Yeah, so he would barter with gear with them so they would buy him gear and send it to him. As well as, you know, like if he needed like a certain plugin for something, they would buy him a plugin for it. Even if he didn't actually need it, he was just, you know, making excuses for not getting work done. But yeah, so these bands were, you know, waiting months and months and months for their stuff. So they'd buy him a compressor, but then he wouldn't do the work. Exactly. So like he would ghost out on them for weeks and weeks on end, like say, oh, sorry, you know, I'm going through some stuff right now or like some of our gear isn't working properly. My grandmother died for the fifth time. Exactly. Like excuses like that would happen all the time. So eventually the bands got so pissed off about how long it's been taken. They would message me because they knew I was working with them. And one of them We're talking me. months here, right? Months. Like okay. three to six months between like bands sending them stuff and not getting anything back. Dude, that's so fucked up. But because, you know, the bands that we'd worked with prior to that, you know, they didn't really give him too much shit because, you know, he had the name. Got it. But after, you know, after three to six months, you know, bands are going to get a little pissy if they haven't gotten at least, you know, a couple mixes back by then. There's only so long that you can do that. It doesn't matter who you are. Exactly. You're going to get a little bit of leeway if you've got a name, but not six months. No. So after I started getting emails from bands about them being pissed off and stuff like that, you know, I was trying to get him to do the work because, you know, I was like, dude, listen, like, it's not just your reputation that you're fucking up by not doing this with these bands. It's mine as well because I'm associated with you. Yes. So in trying to do that, honestly, like me talking to him and getting pissed off and trying to make him work more actually made it worse. And he was doing way less, but what, happened in the background of all of that was him borrowing gear that he was going to buy from other engineers, ghosting them, and then the gear that he was getting from bands, he would post up on like eBay and like Craigslist ads and whatnot, sell them to people, take their money, and not send them anything. And what would happen with the gear that he was borrowing from people? Would he sell that too? Yeah, he would eventually sell that stuff for money as well. And the, the weirdest part about all of it was he wasn't on drugs. Man. Either. I had a drummer in my band. Not any of the bands that are known. But 
I had a drummer in my band once who I lent him a microphone and a compressor because mm-hmm. he said he wanted to, he needed it for something. And then like a month later, I was like, can I have my, my 58 and my 3630 back, please? And he's like, oh, sorry, dude, I hawked it. What? <laughs> like, I couldn't believe he was being serious. Blew my mind. Yeah, you're like, wait, you sold my stuff? And weren't even going to tell me about it until I hit you up to get it back? You're in a band with me? Yeah. Like, we've been practicing three times a week this entire month. If you needed money, why didn't you just ask to borrow some money? Yeah, asking to borrow money is a lot cooler than borrowing gear from somebody and selling it behind their back. Yeah. Dude, that is so... Ugh. So this is why when you have a bad gut feeling about somebody, you really should try to figure out why you've got that gut feeling because their behavior will reflect on you. I'm sure you had to do tons of damage control to not have it completely fuck you up. Yeah, like it literally derailed my entire career at that point. Not only did it become a public thing because, you know, a lot of the bands threw them under the bus, but... I remember that. Yep, a bunch of bands threw them under the bus, a bunch of engineers that we know threw them under the bus, and it turned into a giant fucking ordeal. Man, I remember a bunch of engineers posting screenshots of the guy's profile and being like, do not do business with this guy. He will take six months and your money and not give you mixes. He will sell your gear. Do not ever lend him gear. Like it was, it was one of those like things. It, it spread like wildfire. Yeah. And you can imagine my shock when all of a sudden I'm getting hit up by all these bands and these engineers and all this stuff is getting dropped online. And I have no idea what's going on because me and him just like didn't talk about any of that stuff. Like I didn't know any of that was going on. So as soon as I start seeing like my name being tagged and stuff with him because of my association with him, I was like, holy shit, what is going on? Like I felt like the entire <laughs> world was falling out from under my feet. Well, I mean, in some ways it was because all you've got in this game is your reputation. Exactly. Once that's gone, your career is basically done. The thing is, I know we don't talk all the time or whatever, but we've known each other a really long time now, like six or seven years. And I haven't heard anybody say a single bad word about you. So I guess that means that you did a good job of salvaging the situation. Yeah, for sure. I haven't heard anyone talk shit about you. Yeah, because the, the the biggest negative that came out of it, besides the whole falling out thing with my partner and then like the studio name pretty much getting ruined for you know the next like year, year and a half, was I literally paid everyone back out of my own pocket that he owed money to. Oh, man. Like, I, I didn't need to do that, but I felt like I had to. Just because, like... Fair enough. I felt bad about all of it, and I was like, listen, these people are out of money that they put their trust in somebody for, and, you know, since I'm associated with the guy, I feel semi-responsible because if it wasn't for me buying the stuff that we have and giving him, you know, the space and the gear to be able to do his job, this probably wouldn't have happened. At least not, like... With me involved. It might have happened regardless, like if he was doing stuff on his own, but I felt responsible enough to pay these people back and give people back their gear. I totally back that. Yeah, you didn't have to. Have you ever read Extreme Ownership by any chance? The book by Jocko Willing? No, I have not. I recommend it for anybody trying to have a career in anything. It's a great book. I was familiar with this concept before the book, 
but he's a super popular podcaster author now. And I just wanted to throw out a book suggestion because it covers this sort of scenario. But I think that that was the best possible move because you basically, what you're saying by doing that is I'm owning it. Like, even though it's not my fault that that person is shady, it was in my house, AKA, you know, my business, like this happened under my roof and I can't allow that sort of shit to happen with my name attached to it. That's good leadership and that's good stuff. People will remember that. Yeah, exactly. And that's basically how I was able to not only salvage my own career, but eventually, you know, I was able to start using the studio name again because it didn't have as much of a a negative weight attached to it like it did a year and a half before all that. I didn't know that you did that, but that's really, really cool. Yeah, usually I, I don't like to talk about all that stuff just because like it sucked ass, but you know, I try to always do my best for people like no matter what. Yeah. Okay. So whenever people do good things and then post about it, sometimes I think it's warranted, but I'm always suspicious of people who are trying to make other people think that they're a good person. The good guy badge. Like, I'm so good. Look at me. Look at what I did. I always feel like there's an ulterior motive there. And I think that people can sniff that out. So I think not trying to bring attention to that kind of stuff is the right move, but in the context of a podcast where we're talking to engineers who are trying to get their careers off the ground, it's good information, I think. Because Yeah, absolutely. This kind of scenario, I guarantee you, has happened to lots of people listening. Yeah, because like it's definitely not something that, you know, anyone wants to make public about like, you know, their career and whatnot. But, you know, at the same time, I'm kind of glad that it happened because it gave me more drive to do this by myself and not have to rely on anyone else for my career to be what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the cliche about lessons learned and silver linings, but I mean, that shit is true. (laughs) No matter what bad thing happens to you, the way that you frame it, I mean, look, if you get hit by a bus, that sucks. Yeah. All right. So I'm not talking about that kind of stuff, but In the path of your career, there are things that are outside of your control that will happen to you. Yeah, I do believe that 99% of bad things that happen to us are our own fault, but there is a certain percentage of things that are not our fault and uh, they happen to us. And it's just because we live in a world that has other people in it and has nature in it and shit happens sometimes and how we deal with it and how we frame it will determine how our future turns out. Like, I think that it's entirely possible that if you had not done that damage control and pay those people back, that you could be forever associated with that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And like, now it's at the point where like, I haven't had a single person mention, you know, my old partner, at all in the last like maybe three, four years. like Except for me. Yeah. But like when it comes to clients, because like a lot of people knew me from working with him. So now everyone just knows me for what I do. Like the bands that I've worked with, you know, the reamping stuff that I do and whatnot. Like I've completely like veered off from what people used to know me as. And now they just know me as Phil from Sonic Assault. They don't know me as like the dude who used to work for a dude at Sonic Assault. 
Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about the stuff you do in a minute, but I have a couple more things I want to explore about this. So during that time period, that year and a half of damage control, mm-hmm. I bet you were super stressed out or in a pretty weird state of mind because it probably seemed like your future was very threatened. Oh, for sure. Like literally in that time frame, like after we'd split up and I stopped using the studio name and started working under a different name, I had like maybe one to two projects in that entire year and a half. Like I wasn't getting reamping work. I wasn't getting mixing work. Pretty much everyone was like not even paying attention to anything I was doing at the time. After doing it pretty consistently, right? Yeah, yeah. Like it was pretty much like uh, it took about a year for me to start actually getting consistent work again. But there was like a a nice 12 month period after like that whole online thing happened where, you know, everything was thrown out there and was made public where literally like I was getting zero hits for work. And like even people I was hitting up, like they would be kind of interested, but then they would know about what happened and have a weird feeling about it because they didn't know whether or not to trust me or not. And fair enough, right? Exactly. Like, cause you know, when you are able to read like what happened, like even though a few of the bands actually, you know, name dropped me saying that I had nothing to do with anything. Still, you read that, you see the studio name, you're like, oh, well, this guy was associated with this guy. So he might be the same way as well. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. If you had not paid everyone back, the story would end with what you just said, and he's associated with that guy. He might be like that guy. Mm-hmm. Even though there's no proof that you are like that, you know how it is Oh, exactly. in our society. If someone gets accused of something terrible, even if it comes out that they didn't do it, like that clings to them for a long, long time. So if you were to end the story at, he did fucked up things, but I didn't do it, the end you're leaving it open for people to associate you with that. However, you finish the story off by paying everything back, therefore proving that you're not like that and that you got fucked just as bad as everyone else did because this was happening in secret behind your back and uh, you did what was necessary to do right by people and make sure that nobody was fucked over. And that's a completely different story. Actually, that works in your favor. Almost in some ways you could look at that as a blessing because you got the chance to prove what kind of person you actually are. Yeah, absolutely. And then, then like, it was also great too, because like our engineer peers that I was close to at the time and friends with, you know, they all had my back because they already knew me as a person and knew like, you know, the things that I was doing and wasn't doing. So it was nice having like, you know, our community that had my back during that time as well. I can tell you that I never thought a bad thing about you. I was talking to Will Putney. I was in lots of contact with Will back then. He never had a bad thing to say about you. So I can confirm that like our little circle of friends from that time period never bought into it. Yeah, for sure. And then like, you know, I actually became better friends with Will after that whole situation happened as well. That's what I'm saying. The way you handle that kind of situation, no matter what bad happens to you in life, the way you handle it, the way that you go about the recovery says a lot about your character to people. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and people will remember that for sure. I'm not surprised one bit. Well, I'm glad you got through that. Let's talk about your reamping. Okay. You're known as... uh, Guitar Tone King. 
I know people like your mixes and stuff, but I think that the thing that you're most known for, and I think you also advertise this the most, market it, not actually advertise, but like the thing that you put out there the most is your reamping work and your guitar tone work. And that's kind of what people know you as, as a guitar tone dude. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've definitely become the reamp guy over the last like few years. Like everyone knew me as a tone guy, like back in the Sneep form days. Because I was doing a lot of reamping work for like other engineers back then, but you know, since Facebook has become such a great place to show you know what you work, what you're working on, and things that you can do, basically, I just post up amp shots and reamping videos all the time. So, what drew you to that? What's the deal there? Because it's interesting. I know a lot of guitar players who are more interested in playing, but there's a select few group of people that I know that were more turned on by the way it sounded than the actual playing part. Would you consider yourself in that category? I'm kind of both because I, I really love playing guitar and I like being proficient at my instrument. But at the same time, like I like to know what combinations of amps and cabs, pickups and whatnot make for certain sounds. Like Even when I first started playing guitar, I would listen to a record and I was paying more attention to how it sounded than the riffs themselves, because how it sounded mm-hmm. is what drew me in. How did you start experimenting with tone? Like, where did that begin for you? It started literally like when I first started playing guitar. Like, I would read Guitar World magazine, and you know, when they started putting in like illustrations of guitar players in their rigs, I would literally look at everything that they were using, like pedals, amp chains, what kind of guitars they were using, what kind of pickups they were using, listening to their records so I can see if maybe any of that stuff was on those records and just like buying random pedals and just like experimenting with how they sounded together. So basically you got obsessed with it. Yeah, I got obsessed really, really early. Like I was obsessed with tone probably within the first year or two I was playing guitar. I think everyone who's going to get good at something creative, really anything, but something creative or in the recording world, or if you want to be a guitar virtual, whatever it is, there's going to have to be a time period long before money or career enters the equation where you're just obsessed and you can't skip that stage. If you don't go through that stage, it's almost like I don't think you'll ever be able to truly develop your own identity or real hireable skills. Like People want people who are good enough at something that they could only have gotten there by just going nuts with it for a certain period of time. Yeah, exactly. And then like once, you know, YouTube became such a a big thing, like and bands were putting up, you know, in-studio videos of them recording their records, I'd always pause it on whatever sections amps and cabinets would pop up. So I could see like what they were using mm-hmm. while recording and then also seeing, you know, like what kind of microphones they were using, you know, what kind of cabinets they were using and trying to experiment with that stuff on my own. So that's where like my um collector side came in where I started buying multiple amps, multiple cabinets, and just like trying things out and seeing what I liked. Did you ever have like a big time mentor or did you basically figure this shit out on your own? I figured it out completely on my own. I think that that's really awesome. It just goes to show that, and this is pre-URM too. Yeah, this is when like my only like place to get information was literally the sneak form. That was it. Yeah, and you still figured it out. It just goes to show that if someone is not getting better, there's two options. One, they just don't have the talent for it, which could be the case. Mm-hmm. 
But the thing is, I feel like even if someone has below average talent, if they put in above average work, they'll still they can still get decent. Maybe they'll never be like Mark Lewis with their guitar tones. Yeah. Cause he's like a guitar tone God, but like they can at least get competent. So if you have some talent, even like medium, like average talent, if you work your ass off, you can get really good at this, it, but you have to really want it. And the, and it's just proof to me that uh, you can do it by getting obsessed. There's all the tools out there. So even if it's just YouTube videos where you're pausing it on one frame where it shows the amp settings, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, um, you know, I've always looked up to Mark for guitar tones as well. That's why I have cinder blocks underneath my cabinets. I stole that from him like eight, nine years ago when I saw a picture of his cab room with cinder blocks underneath his cabinets. And I hit him up and was like, Hey, what's up with the cinder blocks? He's like, oh, I use that to decouple the cabinets to make them, you know, tighter and make the low end a lot mm-hmm. tighter. And I was like, oh, that's a very good idea. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use that. Yeah, that's where I got that one too. Yeah, it's like the best thing ever. Like, two dollar cinder blocks make all the world a difference with guitar cabinets. Yeah. So you you basically looked into any resource you could. Uh, how did you experiment though? Um, I experimented by working a lot to the point of where I was basically broke all the time trying to find deals on guitar amps and cabinets so I can sit oh, there. So you worked like working at a day job to save money and then buy gear. Exactly. Cause like basically the studio was making me enough to pay most of my bills. And then I had my day job to pay the rest of the bills, but also have extra money to buy gear. Cause I never came from money or anything like that. Everything I own, I literally bought with cash that I made from either the studio or from my day job. That's admirable. Look, I, I got to say something. There's a misconception out there uh, that uh, that people who come from money have an advantage in the music game. That's not true at all. <laughs> it's not true. As a matter of fact, I'm super fortunate that my dad's uh, fame happened once I was already like almost an adult. So I grew up in the lean years, which kind of shaped me because I know a lot of people who grew up with super successful parents who are just useless, man. I had a best friend um, at one point in time who his parents had way more money than mine ever did. Like these people were rich as fuck and they sent him to Berkeley and they would always buy him these beautiful PRSs and like Les Paul Customs and like everything you could ever want. Yeah. The dude was fucking useless. He actually failed out of Berkeley. Wow. Like not dropped out. Just failed. Like failed. Like how the fuck do you fail out of Berkeley? He had every advantage. And I know, dude, I know several people like that who had every superficial advantage you can imagine and just turned out to be nothing. And then I know lots of people who are killing it at music who came from really shitty backgrounds or normal backgrounds, but just not money. Yeah. And that formed their drive and they saw music as the way to escape that sort of life for themselves. Yeah, because that's how that's how I got into music was because, you know, I came from, you know, a household with a single mom, no dad, no money. We're always broke. So I literally used music as an escape to get away from, you know, 
all the things that I was going through in my childhood from like, you know, bullying and whatnot. So I got like a huge appreciation for music at a young age just because it was my escape from everything. Mm-hmm. And it, I'm sure that that instilled work ethic in you to the, the idea of not wanting to end up like that. Yeah. Cause at the time, you know, my mom was working three jobs. My grandfather, who's now like almost 80 years old, he was still working a full-time job. And I was around those two my entire life. So I saw nothing but hardworking individuals while growing up. Yeah, man. If, if you grow up with a silver spoon, you're not going to appreciate what it takes. Because if you were born at, in a time where your parents are already successful, mm-hmm. then you missed out on the whole period of time where they Yeah, you missed out on the grind. (laughs) Yeah, you missed out on their grind. So you just kind of assume that this is the way the world works. Yeah, and that's like the biggest false reality ever. Like you have to work so hard for everything. Yeah, totally. I think even people who have uh, celebrity parents are going to have a hard time. And I know if people listening might be like, yeah, well, Michael Douglas and Kirk Douglas or, you know. Yeah, like, Martin Sheen and Charlie Sheen, those type of situations. Yeah, but those are the exception. You know how many yeah. rich and famous people have kids that never do shit? A lot. Most. Yeah. Yeah, th- those like family dynasties are like the rarest of the rare thing. I think that it's a false reality to think that that's normal. And I think that the only reason that people think that that's normal is because they don't see... Like the useless kids of these celebrities don't get any press. So you're not even aware that they exist. Yeah. So if all you're aware of are these, like, I just call them dynasties, then you're going to think that that's the way the world works when it's not. No, not in even my close. opinion. Yeah. So all that said, obviously you worked your ass off, but we're talking about gear. Yeah. And you know that everybody says that it's in the hands. In your opinion, what percentage is the hands and what percentage is the gear the hands is definitely a huge part of it because like from reamping as many records as i've reamped i've heard a lot of different sounding hands and you can literally have the best signal in the world but like if your hands don't sound good it doesn't matter what rig you put it through it's not going to sound good so like your hand tone means a lot but you know with different options like all the different amps and cabinets i have I usually can work around that by finding a pairing that works well for whatever the DI is that I get. So you're not going to be able to just plug into a 5150 every single time and it's going to work. Yeah. So I'm sure there's some cases where it's just not salvageable. Yeah. No, there's been times where I've gotten DIs where it's just like, yo, this isn't going to work at all. But, you know, over the years, I've come up with like ways to deal with like bad DIs or, you know, ones that are just clipped to hell and back. So, I'm able to usually get pretty good results no matter what I'm sent. But sometimes I just get stuff sent to me that I just, I can't get a good tone out of it regardless. What do you do in that case? Usually if it's unworkable, I'll literally hit the engineer up or the band that sent it to me and be like, listen guys, I tried to get something with this, but it's not working. I'll ask them what guitar they used, what signal chain they used, and try to figure out what might have gone wrong and either have them retrack it or just try to get the best result I can with what I was sent if they can't do that. But most of the time I'll hit them up and tell them like, hey, this isn't good. What are you guys using so we can try to get this to be better? I feel that that could go either way. I mean, I think that's the right way to approach it. But I feel like there's sometimes some people who might say, it's not our fault, it's your fault. 
fucking mix it or make the guitar tone. There's no way that it could possibly be on our end. But I also think that once you have enough of a reputation for being really good at something, yeah. like you are for guitar tone, if you say what I sent was unworkable, they might. there's a higher possibility, higher chance that they'll believe you. Yeah, no, I don't. I really have zero issues with bands or other engineers. Um, whenever I say anything negative about tracks I was sent, usually they're really, really cool about it, and we usually get it worked out. And if we don't get it worked out, usually I, I can figure out a way to get the results that will make them happy. Got it. Does it ever involve you playing it? No, I've never replayed anything for anyone. Damn, son. Yeah, there's been times where I've wanted to, but like I just have this certain mentality where it's like. I shouldn't have to replay it for people. If I have to, I will. I try to like keep everyone like honest with themselves mm -hmm. as much as possible. So, yeah, at, at one point, you know, you do have to retract things yourself sometimes. But at the same time, I want whoever's playing this to do it the best they can. So I know that it's them and they know that it's them. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I've retracted some things just because I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't could deal with it. Oh, so what are some of the fucked up situations? You're saying sometimes you get DIs that are clipped to hell and back. Yeah, sometimes I'll get them and it literally looks like someone ran through a brick wall limiter and all it is is noise. Yeah. And thankfully through uh, high gain guitar sounds, normally you don't really hear any of that, but through, you know, denormalizing and then also um, transient shaping, you can sometimes get around that. But for clean guitars, it, it never works out. Or like the, my favorite is whenever I get super bad edited DIs with pops and clicks all over the place. Do you just manually remove them? Yeah, I'll just go through and I'll cut and crossfade where all the pops and clicks are at and try to smooth it out the best I can. How much time do you normally put in to fixing DIs? If it's super, super bad, I won't put a ton of time into it, like um, depending on like how much I charge for it. But like if it's something that the band really, really is passionate about, I'll just hit them up and be like, hey, there's a lot of pops and clicks in this and I can fix it, but it's going to cost a little extra money. And if they're cool with that, then I'll go through and I'll be really thorough and get everything done. Makes sense. Are they generally cool with that? Yeah, normally they're very cool with it. Like, I, I already think that my rates are pretty reasonable as is. Yeah. So usually if I say I need to charge a little extra to do extra work, they're usually really fine with it. What are some of the other typical problems that you encounter? Besides clipping and bad editing, those are probably the biggest two, but like whenever people send me wave files that have the tempo embedded in them, when they send those acid files, that's always a pain in the ass. And I'm not sure like why that happens from time to time, but sometimes I'll get stuff in where it's like, they send me a tempo map and the tempo map is all over the place, but the guitar tracks themselves have like 95 BPM embedded in the track itself. Interesting. Yeah, it's really, really dumb. It's something that happens with Reaper all the time whenever I get files <laughs> from Reaper. So, Fucking Reaper. So what I always do when that happens is I'll just open up an empty session, put in the tempo that's baked into those tracks, and then I'll just re-export them as regular waves without all that shit in it. That's a workaround for that. What about tuning issues? Uh, tuning issues, thankfully, a lot of bands are really decent about tuning, but there are times where I will get stuff that's super out of tune. And most of the time, I'll just tell them to retrack it because usually I'm busy with mixing and whatnot, so I don't have time to just go through and just start retuning things with the auto-tune or Melodyne. The fact that you can do that, though, with Melodyne is pretty... Pretty breakthrough, even though it's been around for a long time yeah. now. It still blows my mind. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely a very invaluable tool, especially like if you have bands that have a lot of uh, open wrung out chords. That's when you hear tuning issues instantly. And if you know both guitars and the bass are slightly out of tune from one another, it basically makes you want to kill yourself as soon as you hear that. So do you do any tuning at all? Like even the bass, maybe? Sometimes I will, but very rarely I have to. Usually stuff's pretty in tune, which is surprising because I expect to get like tuning issues all the time. But like all the bands that send me stuff, usually it's pretty decent. Do you think Evertune has changed the game? Oh, for sure. It's cut down tracking times for everybody. There is a little bit of tone sacrifice that you get with Evertune, like with sustain and a little bit of like the body of the instrument. But in a mix, you're not really going to hear that. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter. But like the tuning stability is awesome. Man, I just remember old tuning nightmare sessions where you're spending all day trying to record two chords because you can't get them in tune. Yeah, I've had uh, times where I've just had the guitar player hold out the chord and I'll literally be tuning it while they're strumming it out just to make sure that it's in tune for like literally two seconds of a part. Okay, so what do you think is the most important factor in a great heavy guitar tone? Besides like finding the right saturation, because like I think a lot of people are too scared of either overgaining the signal or undergaining it, but finding the right saturation as well as the right mid-range movement. Those are like my two most important things that I look for in a good guitar tone. How the mid-range holds everything together and how it moves in the mix itself. So let's talk about the saturation. Do you typically find that you find the right saturation and stages the way that I guess I, I guess that's kind of at this point the traditional way of dialing a heavy tone. Uh, just plugging right in isn't the traditional way anymore. It's you know done in stages. Mm-hmm. Uh, but is, is that typically how you do it, or what's your thought process on finding the right saturation? Where does it begin, and how do you? I I realize there's no one size fits all, but if there's like a general thought process, what would that be? Uh, it it's really just like. Because since I do a lot of like my tone finding while I'm reamping, it's all about how I'm hitting the amp from my reamping box first. Like sometimes I'll plug directly into an amp with just my reamp signal going into the amp just to see how it's hitting the amp by itself before I even introduce a boost or anything. So once I figure out what the amp is giving me with just the signal into it, is when I'll decide what type of boost I want to use and how much of it I want to use. Like, depending on, like, if I want something super aggressive, something that's just going to, like, add a little bit of extra gain, or if something that's just going to, like, cut a lot of the low end, like, if it's, like, a really, like, tubby DI, I just find what boost I have that cuts a lot of low end, like, in spots that I want it. So it's just experimenting, really, just figuring out what sounds best for whatever's running through the amp. But that's how I, I kind of find it. So you're, you're not picking the boost in a preconceived notion sort of way. You're listening to what you're given and then intentionally picking the pedal that will create the result you're after. Exactly. Like I can pretty much, since I've used every single one of my boost pedals hundreds and hundreds of times, I kind of have an idea of what each one of them does through each one of my amps. So once I hear what the guitar is doing with just the amp itself, that's how I go about picking which boost I want to try out to get the result that I want. I think one of the biggest mistakes that engineers fall into is preconceived notions when it comes to gear. Like, this band sounds like this, so I'm just going to get the 5150, the Recto Cab, and the Tube Screamer, and it should work. And 
Sure. It might work. 90% of the time it will work, but it might not be the right thing for how your hands sound or how your guitar sounds. Yeah. Okay. So you're making these decisions based on the material that's presented to you. I hope that people listening pick that up as the biggest wisdom here because... So I think there's pros and cons to every technological advancement. And uh, I think the internet is fantastic uh, for learning and promoting and stuff. But at the same time, it has helped propel this idea that you can just grab a setting from somebody and that's just going to work. No, presets are cool, but they're cool as a starting place. Just to kind of hear it and then go from there. Like... Relying on presets, it never works because like it's all mix dependent. Yeah, I mean, look, there's obviously some times where you pull up an effects plugin and put it on and it's just perfect. Or there's a preset in some plugin that you made or that just works perfectly for some scenario. But that's just as like, that's just as specific as if you were to dial it yourself, in my opinion. It's not that it's random, it's just rare. Right. So while it might happen, it's definitely not going to work every single time. There's no way. No, and that's also like when people ask me like if I use templates or like anything like that, I'm like, no, I literally start from zero every single time because like I just want to vibe with what I'm listening to and get a feeling for it. And then once I get a feeling for it, then I just start working on it from there. Even routing? Even routing. Like, um, Wow. Yeah, because sometimes, you know, like certain things that I have set up like permanently, like certain compressors I use and whatnot, like sometimes they don't work for what I'm going for. So I literally will go through and just try stuff out until I get the feel that I'm looking for. But like even your Cubase session, there's like no buses, nothing. It's like nope. literally zero. Literally zero. I remake all of my buses and stuff every single time. Impressive. It just works. It just works better for me because it keeps me excited about it. And I don't feel like I'm just like doing the same thing over and over again. You got to be quick though to have that not be a waste of your time, I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I pretty much have a very limited way of how I do things. So I, I, I do the whole less is more approach. So it doesn't really take me very long to like get like a good foundation going when I do start mixing. Uh-huh. Well, I've always thought that a few of the right moves is better than a lot of the wrong moves. Oh, for sure. Yeah. That's that's why I, I tell a lot of like younger engineers who hit me up or want to talk to me about mixing. I tell them all the time to stop obsessing over individual sound. It's cool to obsess over them like whenever like you're first learning, but like when you start mixing and you start obsessing, it gets to be a negative extremely fast because you start isolating one thing and by the time you know it, nothing works together. How do you uh, balance that, though, with obsessing over guitar tone? Because, okay, guitar tone, I know, can be a rabbit hole. And it can be one of these things where you get the right tone in the first Mm -hmm. five to ten minutes, but then you keep going for five hours. Your ears are shot, and it's gone. And uh, I've even worked with other people who are great at guitar tone, and they do this too. Like mm-hmm. they'll dial it, and it'll be awesome, and then they'll just keep going and fucking ruin it. And you know, it happens also with EQing. Like start notching guitars, and you'll you'll find the two frequencies that really suck, but then you'll hear two more that are kind of annoying. Before you know it, it's neutered. Yeah. But then at the same time, in order to really understand this stuff, you do have to be obsessed to some degree. So 
Where's the line? There's healthy obsession and then there's unhealthy obsession. With guitar tones, it, you can get into an unhealthy obsession area pretty quick once you start like adding in more mics or you know, you're starting to tweak a little too much. I've gotten to the point where I like to pre-mix stuff and I'll use amp sims as placeholder tones just so I have like kind of like a foundation of something that kind of moves cool with the DIs and I'll mix around that. Mm -hmm. And then once I get to a point where I like what I'm hearing out of my mix, I'll bypass those amp sims and then I'll start doing guitar tones. Do the amp sims ever stay? Like, are you ever like, wow, that actually turned out better than anything I could have gotten with the amps? No. Wow. Every single time I always end up reamping with real amps, even on leads and cleans. So the two things I find interesting. Um, so the priest, uh, the template thing. I think that templates, the word template is not the best word because there's such a broad spectrum mm-hmm. of what it could mean. Like for instance, I had a mixing template I used, but all it was was that I had some buses that then routed to stems and a mastered and unmastered and then vocals up vocals down mm-hmm. i got it from andrew wade it's so that you could print everything at the same time right and i didn't want to set that up every single time because there's a lot of time spent to build that but because i was the dude who was often bouncing out stems for people uh back when i was in florida sometimes it would take like an entire day the old method like an entire day wasted bouncing stems when with andrew wade's method you could do the whole track in five minutes yeah so that was a template that i started using religiously uh john douglas started using it religiously too but it didn't involve pre-mixing or anything right right it just involved that basic routing. Now, I know other people who, when you say template, like, it is a fucking template. There is EQ settings, there's everything. And then they just swap out track presets. Yep. Now, I'm not talking about bad engineers here. Like, I know some really great engineers who do this. Yeah. So, I don't think that it's a judgment pro or con. I think it's obviously... Whatever works for you. Exactly. Because like, you know, Billy Decker, the country guy, he uh, he's phenomenal. Yeah, that dude's awesome. Dude, yeah, he's in, his mixes are fucking incredible. And he works off of temp, a template system. He can go from scratch just as well as anybody. But he's got a template that he's been developing for like 15 years. And it's great. And I know Forrester Savelle, who is known as like an analog hardware kind of guy. Yeah. Actually at the at the URM summit, he his whole speech this past year was about track presets and how he has like 10 of them per track. So for like 10 different scenarios and so he will mix and match them as a starting point only. Right, right. Like it's not mix and match and then you're good to go. But it's just a a workflow thing. And then I know people who start from scratch every single time. And I find that one's not better than the other. No, it's just just whatever you're comfortable with. However makes you work more efficiently for yourself. Well, what you said is it keeps you excited. I think that's the the key, actually, is uh, whatever keeps your head in the game. So for me, setting up a template every single time took my head out of the game. I dreaded it. Mm -hmm. The template that I used helped me stay in the game till I left the game. But uh, while I was in the game, it helped me keep my head in the game. But 
obviously you're a different human being. So whatever works for you is what's best. Yeah, and I, I personally just like doing it from scratch just because like it makes me feel like I'm not going through the motion. Like I feel like I actually get more creative working from scratch because I never try to do things the same way. I always like to experiment. So doing it from scratch has always given me the opportunity to try things out that normally I probably wouldn't have tried out if I was like doing things very similar every single time. Man, we've had some people on Nail the Mix who are like that, like Carl Bown, for instance. Are you familiar with him? Um, the name sounds familiar, but I'm not sure if I know him or not. He uh, is one of Colin Richardson's protégés. Okay. He's every bit as good as Colin. He's fucking incredible. Well, if you're going to work with Colin, you got you got to be pretty damn good. Yeah, exactly. If you get to the point where Colin lets you mix with him. Yeah, you know, you know you're doing a hell of a job. Yeah, exactly. I can tell you from experience, Colin is the most meticulous mixer I've ever seen in my entire life. Oh, hearing stories from other bands about Colin is some of the best stuff ever. Dude, when he mixed the Doth record, that shit blew my mind. I had never seen anybody put in that kind of like detail. And the guy was known for taking a long time, mm -hmm. like always going over budget and like taking forever. But it was not because he was fucking around or anything. The thing is, the man does not move forward until what he's working on sounds the best it can possibly sound. And unlike a lot of other people, you know, sometimes when people obsess over something, they'll start to ruin it. Yeah, He's got this special ability to not do that. So when he's sitting there working on something, it's getting better and better and better and better. He's got this vision and he knows that he can get it, like he can get it 50% better and he just keeps on going and going. But he doesn't do that spiral out of control thing. Right. I've never really seen anybody besides him really, really be able to obsess that hard without ruining things. Yeah, because usually when you end up obsessing like that, you do end up negatively affecting whatever you're working on. Yeah. But Colin is just a freaking monster anyway. Dude, when it, he recorded the Trivium drums at my house, it took them three weeks just to decide on a bass drum spot in the room and miking. That does not surprise me one bit. But that bass drum sounded incredible. <laughs> Oh, I bet it did. Uh, oh yeah, those. That's like that was like him with uh, string changes. He'll make people change strings like after like a couple takes. Yeah, I don't blame him. I back it. If you if you can get away with it, I back it. If you can do it, go for it. What are your what as a guitar tone freak? What are your thoughts on string changes? Oh, I'm all about it. Like as soon as I start hearing the high end of the strings dull out, those suckers are coming off and new ones are getting put on. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. 
Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. So we put out a guitar course with uh, Andrew Wade about a year and a half ago called Ultimate Guitar Production. And uh, one of the sections was all about the little things that make a big difference when you add them up, like the pick size, the pick material, the string gauges, the string types, how often you change them, like the length of the cable, like all those things that were one of them alone might not make or break you. When you start adding them all together, they make up a huge part of the tone. And I remember in our group, we always have a private group for these courses, uh, when we were on the string change, on the pick and the string change chapter, a lot of people would get really uppity, I guess, about the string change thing because they think that it's just like a privilege thing. Like you're privileged to be able to do that. Like I can't afford it and I understand, but that doesn't change the reality. The reality is that strings die. Uh, depends on how hard you hit them, depends on the pH of the player, mm-hmm. but they die. And they do. oftentimes a lot faster than you would like them to. Yeah, especially depending on the strings that you get as well. Like a lot of like the newer strings, I've noticed that last a little longer, but it just depends. Like like NYXLs, those have become like my new favorite string just because they last mm-hmm. a little bit longer than the old Diodario XLs. But at the same time, as soon as you start hearing them dull out a little bit, it's time to change them no matter what. Yeah, I've so my criteria was always there comes a point where the guitar and Evertune will get in the way of this, but there comes a point where it's just really if it was tuning fine, everything was fine, but then just can't really tune it very well without like spending 15 minutes. Yeah. That is hint number one. And hint number two is like you said, uh, something's different with the high end. So I would always recording a DI, but I would always keep referencing back to the beginning of the song. Yeah, that's the best place to do it because especially with fresh strings, you can instantly hear the difference between fresh and the strings needing to be changed. You can literally A-B with the band and be like, listen, 
this is what we started with. This is where we're at now. Obviously, if you can't hear the change, I'm sorry, but we need to change the strings. How often on average? When I was still tracking bands, we would change strings maybe three times per song. Damn. Okay. So you did a lot. Are we talking about rhythms? Yeah, rhythms. would always change two to three times per song. That's awesome. So what I would do is I would always order extra low strings. Yeah, because those are the ones that are going to die first. Yeah. So I would do... So basically I would buy two packs per song and then four of the lowest string per song. So two extra of the lowest and one extra of the second to lowest strings. And so that would give me a total of four of the low string per song. Uh, and that tended to get me through with most bands. Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, most metal bands are playing the first top three strings anyway. Yeah. You don't have to change out the high strings. Did you get any resistance on that? No, because they loved me because I was working at my day job, which was a guitar store. So I was getting strings oh, at okay. cost. So they didn't care. But also what I was doing too was whenever we were tracking bands, I would actually add in strings, heads, and sticks into the budget. So when I would send them a quote of you know how much it would cost for us to track them and do everything from start to finish, I would add in string pricing, heads, and sticks. So whatever they paid us, I just took out of that and bought all the strings, heads, and sticks that we needed for the session. Would you itemize it in the invoice? No. Most of the time, I just told them that I added it in there, and they were usually cool with it. But I would always show them my receipt from when I bought the stuff so they would know that's where that money went. Okay, yeah. So I would do that, too, also with like the drum tech and stuff because I always wanted to have my drums professionally tuned. I would just add that into the quote and not really make it an option. No, exactly. Like, you know, yeah. as long as if they see the price and they agree to it, that's all that really matters. Cause like they're going to be appreciative of the fact that you even cared enough to make sure they have string sticks and heads. Yeah, totally. Man, I've always told engineers that if the band is not willing to do it, you need to just do it. Take, take it out of the budget. Just do it. Sometimes you'll record bands who they've been around the block and they know. And so then they just take care of it, Yeah, which is nice. But oftentimes, if you're recording with bands that are brand new or budget strapped, which is a lot of them, they're not going to know about that or think about that. No, exactly. Because like whenever I was still tracking bands, because I haven't tracked a band in a while, like literally like my pre-prep for that is what tunings are all the songs in? What string gauges do you guys like to use? What picks do you guys like to use? And then what are your guitars and what pickups are in them? Just so I'd have an idea of what, they were coming in with. So on the subject of picks, you know, have you ever experienced that lots of guitar players tend to pick a pick that is not optimal for how they play or what they're playing? All the time. How do you get around that? That that was the other topic that uh, in that group I was telling you about, people would get heated about because they'd be like, I've been using this pick for 15 years, like, Blah, blah, blah. You can't tell me what pick to use. And it's like, well, buddy, I'm not telling you what to do, just telling you that different picks sound different and they all have advantages and disadvantages depending on what you're playing. Yeah. Like, for instance, if you're playing strummy shit, ultra heavy picks that are like a block of wood might not be as good as like a medium pick, no. for instance. Yeah, because like basically what I've always done, even like when I first started out, is I have like a big giant cup of like tons and tons of different picks 
from sizes to material to brands. And I'll just dump that thing out and we'll just go through and try picks out and see what sounds best and what feels best. So like I always try to find a nice balance between what they're comfortable with, but also what sounds good for what they're doing. Yeah. My approach too was if something sounded great, but they weren't comfortable with it, I would be like, okay, take 45 minutes and practice. I'll see you in 45. That, that's a good thing too, because once you get yeah. used to it, you're comfortable with it. But like, like anything, you put something new in your hand, you're not going to be comfortable with it right away. Yeah. And if you make them track right then and there when they're uncomfortable, they're going to resent you for it because they're not going to be playing their best. They're going to think it's an awkward experience. And while at the same time, if you're like, take 45 minutes and uh, you charge by the hour, they might not be stoked on that either. However, I believe that when they hear the difference, I've never had anybody hear that. Well, I don't charge by the hour, but uh, never did. Me either. Yeah. I mean, maybe I did at the very, very beginning, but like I had never had anybody who I told them to uh, do the work to get comfortable. I'll see you in 45 minutes or an hour. I'm going to my room. Text me when you're ready. Uh, I've never, they were sometimes a little weird about it, like thinking I was just trying to get out of doing work. But then once they got comfortable with it and they heard the difference, like I would track it. I would track a clip with the pick that they were originally using and then make them practice with the pick I wanted them to use for about 45 minutes. Then we would track that and I'd A, B it and it would be obvious. And uh, then they would never argue again about that from that point forward. Yeah, I used to do the same exact thing. Like even like when they would come in and with their guitars and their guitars didn't sound very good or they weren't set up good, I always would get my guitars set up and in the tuning that they were coming to record yep. it so we can A-B stuff. And they would always give me shit about them using my guitar because they didn't like how it felt compared to their guitar. But most of the time, my stuff sounded better than theirs. So I would just leave them to play on my stuff for a little bit. And once they felt like they were comfortable with it, then we would just get to work. Yeah, even if it takes two hours, whatever. Like, Yeah, usually what I'd like to do with bands anyway is like the first day is literally just me getting the vibe off of them having them show me like their stuff and like we figure out like what gear we're going to be using like guitars and stuff like that just so like everyone can get comfortable and kind of like in a uh, buddy buddy type of situation on the first day yeah totally before we even start doing anything else i think that's really smart man even if you're on a small budget with like short session or something like yeah week or two weeks or something i consider those short yeah you definitely got to take at least one of those days to just vibe with the band yeah it's especially important if you don't have much time because every decision you make is going to have that much more pressure behind it because you don't have extra time. So yeah. to take that time to really like hone in on what the best tools are for the job is super valuable. Yeah, and then not only that, like on top of like finding out what the right tools are, just getting into the headspace of the band and seeing where they're all at. The more like they can trust you right off the bat, the better it's going to go whenever you're making quick decisions and they don't question it. They just say, all right, let's try it. And then we just go for it instead of fighting with somebody for like an hour over like one part that you think could be played different or something that you want to change arrangement wise. How did you go about establishing trust? 
because that is that is a huge, huge thing. It's also something that people write to me about all the time that they have trouble with. Like they have trouble getting bands to accept their ideas. They want to help them improve something, but the band won't listen. And in my opinion, I'm always thinking they don't trust you. That's what's going on. Yeah, the way I go about it is I treat them like they're my friends. I don't treat them like they're a client. I don't treat them like they're a paycheck. Like I literally talk to them like I would if I was talking to a friend. Mm -hmm. And they know by my body language and also by the way I'm talking to them that I truly care about their stuff. And like I'm coming from a place of care, not coming from a place of, you know, I'm the guy recording your shit. You need to listen to me. My where the highway. Yeah, exactly. So it's always, they know I'm coming from a good place. They know that I'm there to get the best out of them. Mm -hmm. How do you establish that though? I mean, yeah, so you talk to them like a normal human being. Yeah, like literally the first time they ever meet me, like in person, you know, high fives, hug it out. I'll make them dinner or we'll go out and hang out somewhere and just vibe off of each other just to get like them to know my personality in person. Because like, I think I do a pretty good job of showing my personality through texts as well. But I always try to like vibe out with them as much as possible and show them like, hey, you know, I'm really excited to work with you guys. And, you know, if I have a really good understanding of their music and them as a band, that makes them trust me almost instantly because they know that I'm actually into what they're doing. One thing that I've noticed that establishes trust really quick is to show a musical result rather than talk about it. You could sit there arguing about an idea for a long time. And since you are not another person, right? You're only you. By using words to describe a musical idea, you guys could mean, you could be using the same words yet mean two completely different things. So when you say, man, I want this to sound like dark and heavy, their idea of dark and heavy could be completely different. Oh, absolutely. You might be thinking dark and heavy in a way that totally complements the song. They could be thinking dark and heavy as something that has nothing stylistically to do, yet you're using the same words. So you can sit there and argue about that sort of thing for a long time. Whereas if you just find a way to show them, then it's either, do you like this or do you not like this? But no time wasted. And if, and if you can do that enough times to where, obviously you're not going to, you're not going to win them over every time, but no, not every time. If you can do that enough times to where the ideas are good, and then also when they don't like your ideas, you're totally cool about it. That's key. You just let it go. I think that that'll help people open up to you a lot more because they're going to realize that you're not trying to hurt them or their song. You're not trying to take over. If they're not into it, you're not going to you're not going to be a bitch about it. But sometimes you have really good ideas, so it's worth listening. Yeah, exactly. So like, you know, if you can like instantly show them what you're talking about and they can hear it, that usually makes for them being cool with it, especially when you A, B it and it's obviously better. But you know, like you said, sometimes ideas don't work out and you just got to move on from that and just keep getting work done. Just let it go. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, the thing is also is later on after you guys are finished with it, if you still think that idea might be good, you can always bring it back up later. Yeah, totally. This is a skill that I picked up from my band years uh, because I wrote like 90% of the music in my band. I always wrote far more than what we ever used. I always say that 65% of everything I wrote or 70% got trashed. And so I was just used to ideas not making it to the finish line. And that's fine. So it kind of conditioned me for 
bands not accepting my ideas and was totally cool with it. Yeah, which I've definitely had that experience in all the bands that I've been in prior to uh, recording. What, that you did a lot of writing and a lot of stuff didn't make it? Exactly. Like I would do almost all the writing for all my bands and basically they would cherry pick the stuff that they felt comfortable playing. Yeah, and that's fine. Yeah. I mean, whatever works for a band, right? What I found was funny is when I'd be in bands with people who didn't write very often, like maybe they'd write a song or two per year as opposed to me writing 20 to 30 per year. They would get super precious about those songs or those riffs because, you know, it's it's kind of like if you have a lot to choose from, then every single option means a little bit less than if you have very few things to choose from. Every one of those means a lot more to you. So one of my big conflicts in the bands I've been in was the clash between people who write all the time versus people who don't write all the time. The people who don't write all the time happen to not be as good at writing as the ones who do write all the time, but they're way more precious about their ideas yeah, absolutely. because it's the only ideas they've got. <laughs> yeah. So if you, if you tell them something they've been working on for the last year and it's all they got is not good, they get really, really butthurt over it. Yes. It's a very real scenario. But then on the other hand, if you accept their ideas and they're second rate, then you're hurting your own band. However, on the other hand, if you don't accept their ideas, you're hurting morale and you're hurting your own band. Yeah, it's definitely a chess match. Whenever yeah. you're in a band or if you're recording a band, it's always a chess match. You got to make the best moves. That's going to make everyone comfortable to where you all can get to the finish line, but not lose the game. Yeah, it, it's hard. I think um, that's why you see so many bands that have stood the test of time who are basically dictatorships. Yes. But the thing is, that dictator better be a fucking motherfucking badass like Dave Mustaine back in the day or something. Yeah, I was about to say Dave Mustaine is like the golden example of a dictator yeah. of a band. I think that people now who weren't of age when Megadeth were at their prime may not understand that because they just know them as like oh, like a classic rock band with, with that eccentric singer. Yeah. But at their prime... That band was fucking deadly. Dude, they were like one of the best bands in the world. Yeah, like the Rust in Peace days. Holy shit. They were better than everybody. And yeah, it's funny yeah. too because like Dave Mustaine's like main goal has always been to just be better than Metallica. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting. Hatred and uh, jealousy, they're very strong motivating factors in life. I tell you what, some really good Megadeth records came out of that. Yeah, or just, it's not even hatred and jealousy. I mean, there's that too, and I know because they talked about it in that fucking movie. Best worst movie ever. Man, well, if you ever wondered, so I don't think Metallica sucked. I think they just started to get old. But uh, if in that time period, they did kind of suck. If you ever wondered why, you just watched that movie and, yeah, and you understand, and you understand exactly. <laughs> Man, I saw that. We're talking about some kind of monster. I saw that in the theater and was just, it was shocking. Like that psychiatrist yeah. paying him $40,000 a month to come in and like tell them what lyrics to use. Remember when he came with lyrics? Yeah, that was insane. Yeah. I'm watching <laughs> I remember watching it and like, this is like when I was still a teenager and I'm like, this is like the biggest metal band in the world and they have a psychiatrist telling them how to do their thing. Yeah. It was insane. It was actually insane. I could not believe I was seeing that. How did the biggest metal band in the world turn into a bunch of housewives? Yeah, who are 
getting lyrics handed to them by a psychiatrist? What? Yeah. That's like the worst person you want giving you lyric advice. Man, I remember I had a shrink once. Before we were called Doth, we were called Dirt Nap, like back in like 1999 or something. We had to change the name because there were like five other Dirt Naps, trademark issues. That's, that's okay. Doth is a way better name. It is. But at the time, Dirt Nap worked with like what was cool, like Slipknot, Dirt Nap. Like it was... I Slipknot's really, really cool now. Uh, we were never nearly as cool as them, but it kind of fit with the types of band names of that time period. But I was telling him that we needed to change it, and he suggested something not so negative, like, how about Earth Movers? I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> like, I could tell that he had thought about it and uh, wanted to be cool. I felt so uncomfortable. Like, dude, you just put me in a really weird situation, man. Yeah, like this old dude who's supposed to be like helping me is giving me band name suggestions that are Earth Movers. What? It was in this moment, AL found out he was in the Twilight Zone. Dude, it, it made me so uncomfortable. <laughs> Shrinks are not supposed to get personal. You're not supposed to know anything about them or how they feel about anything. They're playing a very specific role. And he broke that by giving me his own personal opinion on a band name. Like He basically volunteered that he had been thinking about it on his own time. And that like it totally fucked everything up. What the fuck? It's like, come on, man. Like, this is not what we're paying you for. <laughs> yeah. Earth Movers. Worst name ever. Imagine Earth Movers, the hinderers. God, dude. Earth Movers. What a terrible name. I know. He must have been watching like the Discovery Channel or something and thought of you. Well, he wanted it to be like, so, you know, dirt nap means dead, right? So yeah, he was worried that I was into shit that was too dark, I guess. And... <laughs> that I haven't been cured of that yet, but um, I, I think that he was trying to get me to take a more positive spin on things. I guess he didn't really understand that uh, metal is just music. It's not Cannibal Corpse aren't actually mutilating women. <laughs> exactly, it's just metal. Like that's all it is. This that's like that's part of the art form is the dark imagery and all that shit. Like. Very few people actually take that seriously. Unless you're an early 90s black metal band, then you take it very seriously. Yes, unless you're an early 90s black metal band. Uh, some people in the hardcore scene take it pretty seriously too. The most violent shows I've ever been to have been when we toured with hardcore bands. But anyways, with that Metallica movie, the stuff that I expected to see was them busting at the seams, Dave Mustaine crying, like... All that stuff. What I didn't expect to see was a psychiatrist charging $40,000 a month trying to become a member of the band. Like, that's when I was like, all right, these guys are in rough shape. <laughs> like, holy shit. Yeah, they're in super rough shape. Yeah. One of my favorite parts was when James just disappeared. Yeah, he was just like, fuck this, I'm out. I'm in Russia snowmobiling for months on end. Right? Didn't he just like... Yeah, he just bailed. Didn't call nobody. Didn't tell no one where he went. He just... He was gone. Yeah, nobody knew where he was. He was in Russia snowmobiling for months. A pure boss move. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, you know what? You guys can figure this shit out. I'm out of here. I thought that was incredible. You can only do that if you're James Hetfield or 
Yeah, Hetfield definitely seems like the coolest dude out of that entire band. Yeah, and badass too. Yeah, he's a badass dude. Yeah, I think maybe probably, I don't want to say the best rhythm player of all time because we've got some incredible players now like John Brown from Monuments and stuff. But for the time period... For the time, yeah. He was the best rhythm player for the time period. And dude, Master of Puppets is still... I don't want to say impossible. Even if you're a seasoned player, it is hard. Yeah, downpicking that entire song. Like, to play that song from start to finish, like the seven-minute version, and downpick your whole way through it, that's a serious feat on guitar. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so back to recording. You were saying that amp sims never work for you. I think that's interesting. First of all, I'm not surprised, but uh, I think it's interesting because I do think that they've come a long, long way. Oh, they sure have. Yeah. There was a time period where I could never imagine them working, but the Kemper kind of, I consider that a sim, even though it's hardware. Yeah, it, it really is. Like, cause you know, Every single profile is literally just a single snapshot of one tone. Like it's, yeah, you don't have the amp. You just have one sound. It's ones and zeros. So yeah, that changed my mind on Sims because I used to be an amps only guy, even though I had like a pod for writing. Yeah. I used to be an amps only in the studio guy. And then when Sukhoff and I profiled all those amps and we got the Kempers and AB, sometimes it just sounded better than the amp. It just did, at least in some scenarios, not always. Yeah, because sometimes it changes the tone just a bit to where it does actually sound a little bit more of what you want it to sound like as like a process tone yes. without having to actually process anything. Yeah, that's exactly it. So the key here is that you're not trying to get the exact tone as you do through the amp. Well, you're getting a different tone, right? So you're profiling it and then typically when you start adding its own onboard pedals and shit that it has inside of it, sometimes you could create something better. Yeah. So sometimes you can come up with something that's completely different than what you're going for, but it just works. Yeah. So that said, and the fact that amp sims have kind of turned the corner and they're a lot better than they used to be. What is it about them that doesn't work for you in a final sense? And would you ever be open to it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, if I didn't have any of my amps or I didn't have the space or the place to be able to reamp stuff and use real amps, I'd have zero issue using amp sims for mixes. Okay. But it's one of those things where, like, I just get a wider tone and I can get what I'm looking for way quicker with real amps than I can with sims. For whatever reason, I just work better with analog amps than I do with sims. I think that kind of back to what we were saying about templates and stuff, what matters is what works for you. Like whatever the scenario is that makes you do your best work, that's what you should do. Yeah, because like at the end of the day, everything is tools. And as long as it sounds good and it's what you're going for, that's all that matters. So you wouldn't be against it if, if there was a scenario where you had your amp sim placeholder tone and then you went and tried the real ones and... For whatever reason, the amp sim tone was better. You'd be cool with that. Absolutely. Especially like with like the newer stuff, like the neural DSP plugins and then like the, uh, the SEL tones ones. Like yeah. Those two in particular are like as close as anyone has ever gotten to the feel of a real amp. Like you play those and it feels like a real amp. 
which is extremely important. Because if it just feels like I agree a static digital thing that's not moving very much, it's like you know that I don't like that. But like all these newer amp sims are just killing it. Like I have no problem telling people to buy neural DSP amp sims just because they sound sick and they feel how they're supposed to. I do believe that the STL and the neural amp sims are the best on the market that I've heard. A hundred percent. Toneforge Jason Richardson is also really good. I'm not just saying that because of my partner. That one is really good for low-tuned guitars. Right. But really, at the end of the day, it's just whatever works. Yeah. But all I know is whenever I plug into any of my amps and have them cranked up in the room, it makes me happy and it sounds good under a mic. So I'm, ex- I'm excited about it. Fair enough. So do you have a perma set up with your cabs? I don't have any permanent setups. Actually, um, if I'm working on a record that I don't have all the songs for, I'll keep the mic set up. But most of the time, I, I will literally break all my mics down and start from scratch on tones for different people. That's interesting because the way that we used to do it was that you saw Mark's cabinet room. Yep. We would all use that. I would use that. Jason would use that. Mark would use that. But the rule was you don't go in there. Yeah, everything's placed where it's placed. Don't touch anything. Yeah, there was even like caution tape. I love it. Yeah, I mean, and there were several options. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, because like even like with my wall, I have eight cabinets and I have 20 plus amps. Jesus, dude. And you start from scratch every time. Every time. Just because like, you know, my ears sometimes hear different things depending on what day it is. So where my placeholder mic setup would usually be, sometimes it doesn't sound good to me and I'll just put it somewhere else or use a different speaker or switch over to a different cabinet. Do you by any chance have the robot? No, I don't, which is surprising because uh, I'd be like the prime candidate for someone that should have that. Yeah, I figured you would have had it. Nope, I literally sit in front of my cabinet with the amp at a, an okay volume to where it's opened up and I just sit there with a mic and just move it around until it sounds good. So headphones on? Headphones on. Okay, can we talk a bit about your process of dialing tones and the setup part of it. because So we talked about you run the DI through the amp head mm-hmm. and you see what you've got. But yes, in order to get there, you have to choose an amp head and a cab. Yeah. So that initial choice, where does that come from? That comes from depending on the, the material. Like um, if I hear, because usually what I like is if I'm doing just like a reamping job, not something that I'm mixing, usually I'll have them send me a pre-mixed drum and bass track if I'm not doing bass kind of get an idea of what they're going for mix-wise. So once I hear their mix, I can kind of figure out like what type of mid-range that needs or what type of low-end it needs. Most of the time, I'll, I'll definitely try the 5151st just because 90% of the time yeah. that's what people want. But, you know, sometimes I'll just be like, all right, this needs, you know, dual rectifier mid-range or this needs that bite of my Bogner. So... I'll try things out, and thankfully now uh, my life is a lot easier because I just got some amp switchers that make this whole process like a million times quicker for me. What kind? Uh, the KHE Audio 8x4 switchers. Okay. And uh, I have two of them, and uh, the new versions you can actually daisy chain together. So I have a 16x8 setup. So I can literally switch between 16 cabinets, not 16 cabinets, but 16 amps and 8 cabinets at the same time. So it's all wired into the switcher. So I just take right out of my MW1, right into the input of the switcher, and I can literally just sit here and switch through my amps and figure out tone combinations on the fly. And switch cabinets too, you said? Yep, I can switch cabinets instantly. So I, if I 
want to go in between like my two Mesa cabinets, my traditional, my oversized. I can literally just sit here and switch between the two of them and figure out which one sounds better in the room for, for what I'm looking for. Beautiful. So you make the decision of the initial guess based on what you think it needs. And uh, yep. so then you run it through. If you like what you're hearing, kind of, then you'll decide on a pedal. Like at what point does the pedal come in or when do you decide to go to another head? Usually like once I hit the head, like if it doesn't sound the way I want it to in the mid range, then I'll switch to a different head. As soon as it sounds pretty good in the room to me is when I'll uh, put a mic on the cab and start moving around that to see like where I'm liking like the overall like sound. And once I'm there is when I'll, I'll figure out what overdrive I want to use. Got and it. I have like a, like a top four that I always go to. Um, I either try out a precision drive first, an Abominable Electronics Hellmouth, my uh, Earthquaker Palisades, and my Proton Audio uh, Dead Horse Deluxe. Those are the four that I always kind of gravitate towards first for trying things out. And if those don't work, I have like 30 other overdrives that I can always try. Mm-hmm. But the biggest trick that I do when dialing in tones is I'll pan the guitar to the left while I'm dialing in the tones. Because like how it sounds in the center is not what matters to me. How it sounds left and right for rhythm guitars is all that matters. If it sounds good left and right, I know I'm where I need to be. Because as soon as I'm dialing in in the center, as soon as I pan them, I find shit that I don't like about the tones. That makes that sense. I could have doubt. Yeah, because like dialing in the tones while you have them panned, that's how it's going to be in the mix. Yes. So if it sounds good like that, that's how you should be doing it from the start. So the idea being that you're dialing it for what it's actually going to be. Exactly. I'm, I'm going for the finished sound. Like I try to get as close to mix ready as possible. So I play around with mic phase. I play around with placement and I just move stuff around until like it locks into the mix. And that's before any processing? I barely do any processing on my guitars. Like um, the most I'll do is maybe like a couple notches at like maybe 3K or 4K if it needs it. And then maybe a low pass and that's it. Most of the time I don't have to do any high passing or any extra processing. Most of the tones on most of the records I do are all raw. Got it. I believe that actually. I remember the no EQ challenge that we used to do, which was dialing in a tone that needed no EQ. Yeah. It's hard to do. But it's possible. Yeah, because like, you know, with my obsessive end, like I've literally sat in front of all of my guitar cabs and with a single 57 in my hand and just ran guitar tracks through my setups, just finding all the spots on my cabs that I like. Yeah, makes sense. So I know every, I know every single one of my cabs inside and out for what I look for in tones. What is your arsenal of cabs? Um, right now I have a Bogner Ecstasy 4x12 with V30s, a Mesa Oversized with V30s, Mesa Traditional with V30s, my Omega 2x12, which has one of their newer OEM speakers in it that's made by um, Eminence. That sounds super, super sick. Orange 4x12, a Zilla 2x12, and then I have an Angle XXL Pro cabinet, and then my uh, Marshall 1960 cabinet. Nice. How long did it take to amass that collection? Basically my entire like recording career. Like All the amps and cabinets I have and all the gear I have has been bought throughout the years. All right, what's your head collection? Head collection, all right, I got my dual rectifier tremo verb, two-channel, my Bogner Ecstasy, 5150 block letter, 5152, a JSX, a triple X, a orange Jim Root Terror, a little 50-watt custom Krankenstein 2 that Tony Crank personally made for me, 
an original number 14 crank revolution, my angle fireball 60, my JCM 800 2210, my JCM 900 SLX, my JMP 2204, my PVVTM 120. <laughs> <laughs> I also have my Ampeg V4, my Randall Satan 50, my 5153, my Mark IV, and then I have a Marshall 8100 and a Sun Beta Lead. Jesus, dude. I have a lot of amps. Yeah, that is quite the collection. And they all do something that I like. So that's why I kept them all. It's just an impressive collection. I've gone to multi-million dollar studios that don't have collections like that. Yeah, and like I'm even like that with mic preamps. I like collecting mic preamps too because they all have like a little bit of a different like character to them. Like whenever you're driving them hard when you're getting guitar tones. Yeah. So basically, do you do any processing at all? Once it goes in the box? Once I reamp guitars, the only processing that I'll do like on my mixes if it, if it needs it is maybe a low pass. I'll cut like at 14.5K and up all that air frequency. I'll get yep. rid of like that. But other than that, depending on the cabinet, like I don't really need to do anything else. Like I don't do any like compression or anything unless it's like a super dense mix. Then I might throw like the UAD LA3A on there and just like kiss it just a little bit just to keep like the chugs in line whenever like it's a super, super like heavy palm mute stuff. But other than that, I don't do any processing. So it's like detail work. Yeah. You're not doing notching or anything like that? If I do, it's 3K and 4K and that's it. Okay, awesome. This is impressive. It just goes to show if you put the work in on the source tone properly, uh, you don't need to do too much after. Exactly. Like the more time you put into getting the tone right off the mics, the less time you have to do messing with it later. Yeah. Some of the best guitar tones I've ever heard in mixes. I've had the opportunity, as you know, to work with some pretty incredible people and then also hear lots of raw multitracks because of Nail the Mix. We've done like 70 Nail the Mixes now. Yeah. Some of them are unbelievable guitar tones, like say the Architects one. And what I've noticed is that typically, I'd say nine out of 10 times, the guitar tones are fucking deadly from the get-go, raw. Like that architect's tone that Henrik Good did is just, it sounds ridiculous on the record, but when you hear the raws, it sounds ridiculous. Yeah, and like I've talked to Henrik a few times and like we've just talked about guitar tones and the more time you just spend like making sure the tone is right for what you're going for, the better it's going to be. Yeah. That's why, I, that's why I like waiting until like I'm like at maybe 80% of where I want to be with a mix before I reamp, just because like I'm reamping for that sound of the record. Like, so the guitar tones are going to fit where I want them to fit. Yeah. Makes sense. How did you develop your mid range hearing? I think that that's a really, really hard thing for people to develop. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not really sure how I developed it. It's just from years and years of just like listening to mic placement and like just going through like everything. Like I'll go through an amp and I'll sweep the mid-range of an amp just to figure out where the bloated spots are at and where it opens up. Like where it's not scooped, but it's not bloated. And I do that with everything. Like and anytime I like have an EQ or anything that I can sweep frequencies around, I'll just sit there with one band and I'll just sweep it back and forth just so I can hear the curve and like how big the cue is on it and stuff like that so I know where it's supposed to be and like where it sits. So yeah, just put the time in basically. Exactly. It's just trial and error and just putting in the time. Okay, let's change topics a little bit. You live in Tampa, right? Cape Coral. Where's Cape Coral? Cape Coral is like two hours southwest of Tampa. 
Okay, so kind of not the biggest market. No, there's like literally no scene here. Okay, but you've done all right. Reason I'm bringing that up is because a lot of people who listen don't live in big markets and think they need to move to LA or something to make it work. They don't understand how to get a career going in their small ass town. Um, can we talk about that some? Yeah, absolutely. Cause, yeah, because you don't live in a big market. I literally live in a retirement city. Yeah, so how did you make it happen? I guess what I'm getting at is how do people who live in Nowheresville get the word out? How did you do it? Just being persistent. I don't have a lapse in like posting on social media. I try to be as involved in like Facebook groups as I can. So like I'll go into like, you know, Facebook groups of genres that I specialize in and I'll just talk to people and tell them what I do and get to know them as people and through doing that is when I started getting more and more work from outside of my area and from them being happy with the results of what I've done, told their friends. And it's basically been word of mouth only for the last like five years. Mm -hmm. And it's just from literally from the time I wake up to the time I pass out, I literally will hit people up, post about my studio and put up videos of like reamping jobs and stuff that I'm doing just to kind of get people hearing what I'm doing and kind of uh, get them knowing about me more through seeing like, you know, the wall of amps and stuff like that. But it's just being persistent more than anything and just getting yourself out there. Yeah, but man, a lot of people are persistently annoying and they do those same things, but they piss people off. Like I said, I've never heard of you pissing people off. Yeah, the, the reason why they piss people off is because they're impersonal about it. Like they're just treating it like a paycheck. Like they're hitting people up with the idea of making money off of the people that they're hitting up. Mm-hmm. I'm hitting people up because I, I'll listen to their bands and I'll see what they're posting about. And I want to actually get to know these people as people. Like maybe eventually we'll end up working together. But if not, you know, I just want to be a part of the community more than anything. It's very interesting you're saying this. Uh, we put out a course called Career Builder, which is aimed at people who are trying to go from zero to quitting their job or at least making enough to where recording can be like a secondary job or something. We discourage people from advertising. We discourage them from, you know, paying Facebook ads or print ads or any of that stuff. And the main thing that we encourage, aside from the audio part, of course, is to network properly. But in order to network properly, you really kind of just have to be a part of your community. I say that there's two different types of networking. There's goal-oriented networking and then open-ended. And I've always thought that open-ended is the best way to do it. Goal-oriented is when you're at NAM and some other fucker gives you some shitty business card and like you can tell they're just trying to get something out of you. Goal-oriented. Open-ended is when you're just trying to make friends and be a part of your community, regardless of where it's going to go, knowing that basically you're just planting seeds. Yeah, exactly. Something might come out of it. It might take years. You're just an active, positive part of the community that you're involved in. So in your case, because you don't live in a big market, you had to do it through Facebook groups. And Facebook groups are great for that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Especially like if you if work with bands that the other members in those groups like. So if you do a record for a band that gets a lot of attention in these Facebook groups, 
as soon as they know who worked on it, they'll want to talk to you just because you worked on it. And I love when people just randomly hit me up and ask me questions about things that I've worked on just because I like the conversation more than anything. But like, if they do want to work with me, awesome. If not, and they just want to like pick my brain about certain things, I have zero issues having conversations with people and becoming friends with them. That goes a really, really long way. So I think you're right that the reason people piss people off is because they're impersonal. I also find that with Facebook groups or online, if people feel like you're spamming them out, they turn off immediately. So one of the most important things to me is your etiquette. And if you're in a group, the purpose should be to engage other people in meaningful conversation. So helping them out with problems or just continuing an entertaining conversation, but not spamming them with your shit. Yeah, exactly. Through that relationship you build, then if it's a genuine relationship, people will become more curious about who you are. And that's when they might look at your profile and see some of the videos that you posted, which show the amp wall or whatever it is. Then they might take a greater interest. But it comes from from being a positive part of the community in the first place and uh, just trying to help people out. Exactly. And if you come off like an annoying asshole right off the bat, most people are just going to either block you or they're going to be like, yo, I don't want to ever work with this guy because he's annoying. Uh, like a know-it-all. Those are the worst. Like when people are like that, like it's like, dude, just be chill. People want you to be chill. There's a difference between helping people with a problem and being a know-it-all. We call them the option C guys. So, you know, oftentimes people will ask, should I do this or that? Yeah, and they'll tell you the complete opposite. Yeah, they'll give you some option that has nothing to do with your life or your question. Don't be the option C guy. Like, I'm trying to decide between Pro Tools and Cubase. Bro, get Reaper. Yeah, exactly. Pro Tools and Cubase sucks. Be a Reaper, bro. Yeah, that's exactly it right there. It's the most annoying thing ever. That was like a couple of days ago, I posted about um, buying a new Mac. And I literally put at the very end of it, buying a PC is not an option on Mac only. And I got at least five or six comments like, well, why not a PC, man? Why, why don't you like PCs? <laughs> it's like, well, I don't like them because I'm used to working on a Mac and my entire workflow is on the Apple ecosystem. So I can't just get a PC and say, fuck Mac. So that's why. Yeah. What people don't understand is when they do things like that, people are watching. Oftentimes, people who could be a co like a colleague or someone who would hire you in the future, uh, whether it's a band or you know some producer who might hire you to do some work for them or whatever, people are watching online. And so the way that you behave yourself, it carries a lot of weight, I've noticed. Oh, for sure. And then also, everyone has to remember, the internet does not forget ever. No. <laughs> you might think that people forgot, but I bet you deep down in the recesses of some people's cell phones, they have screenshots of almost everything you've probably ever said in your life. I'm sure we would all get in trouble for some things. <laughs> yeah, so don't be an asshole on the internet. Just be chill. Yeah, absolutely. Now... What about in-person networking? Like, how does that work for you? Yeah, whenever um, I go out to shows, I'll go to Tampa and Orlando. And like, if I go to like shows where I want to see like certain bands, I'll make sure I get there early so I can see the openers, see the local bands that are playing these openings, like opening these bigger shows. 
And if the bands are sick, I'll approach them and be like, hey, you guys are awesome. And I'll just introduce myself to them. Like, I don't come up to them like I'm going to offer them, like, you know, my mixing work and stuff like that. I literally just walk up to them and start talking to them like a regular dude would if I was just going to a show to check out bands. And if they're good, I'll go up to them and just talk to them and introduce myself. And most of the time around, at least in Florida, most of those bands already know who I am. They're just excited that I even approached them to say, hey. You're not going up to try to close a sale or anything. You're just going up to meet them. Exactly. Just go up, meet them, say, what's up? Hi, I'm Phil. You guys had an awesome set. I really like what you guys are doing. And then basically just natural conversation from there. How often does that result in work? Not very often, but most of the time they'll remember me. And if they are still in that particular band later on down the road, I have gotten work from those bands. But most of the time, if they've broken up, they'll have a new project and I'll get hit up sometimes for that. Mm -hmm. But most of my work literally is from word of mouth and Facebook. I know quite a few people who have created careers that way. I also know a whole lot more people who haven't been able to crack the code. And I really, 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 really do think what kind of person people perceive you as is kind of the number one factor here. Obviously, your work aside. Yeah, your work needs to speak for itself, but you also have to be personable and approachable. Yeah. Like, if people don't think you're approachable or they don't get a good vibe off of you, it doesn't matter how good your work is, they probably are going to be a little suspect of working with you. Absolutely, man. And I've had some people who hit me up literally every single day with a link, uninvited. And then I know that they'll hit up everyone I know with the link because we'll talk about it. Yeah. It'll just be a copy paste. And then there's been a couple times where I've tried to help them out and be like, yo, this is not the way to do it. And then they'll get mad. Just trying to tell them that there's a better way to do it. Like, And then they'll get mad and like I'm trying to to like lord something over them or like not take the time to listen and actually trying to help them get people to listen to their stuff by saying this is not how it's done this is going to achieve the opposite of what you want so change your approach yeah definitely change your approach cuz like on Facebook whenever I get inundated with tons and tons of friend requests I'll literally take time out of my day and go through them one by one. If someone's in a band, I will listen to their band before I even accept their friend request or even say what's up to them. So I already have an idea that, hey, this band is good mm -hmm. and I think they're sick and I just want to add this guy because he's in a sick band and I'm going to tell him his band is sick. I was just talking to Mick Gordon. I don't know if you heard that episode. If you haven't, it's really, really good. Yeah, I need to listen to it because I love Mick Gordon. That guy's fucking awesome. Yeah. Have you heard the first episode I did with him? Yeah. The first one I definitely checked out. That was one of my favorite ones ever. This new one that we put out like last week is also one of my favorites ever. He's just a brilliant human being. But one of the things that he does, and actually I realized that I do this too. I've done it for a long time. We talked about this is he will send people that he doesn't know, but that he's impressed by, whether it's a uh, company that made a plugin that uh, has really helped his workflow or a musician or whoever and just send them a really nice note thanking them for the work they did. No strings attached. I was thinking about it. I hit Jason Richardson up yesterday and was like, dude, you are a freak. And I'm not trying to get anything out of him. 
I just wanted him to know because he posted some video yesterday of him playing along with Jordan Rudess. Mm-hmm. It is nuts. It is nutty. Oh, I bet it is because Jordan Rudess is a fucking crazy keyboard player. Yeah, so basically Jordan Rudess did this online jam with a drummer and an acoustic guitarist, which is like this crazy-ass thing. And then Jason took it and learned it by ear and just played it along with them and posted that. And it's fucking nuts. If you guys want to see it, today is Sunday, April 12th. So he probably posted it on April 11th. I'm going to Instagram right now to point out which video it is. It's worth checking out. So anyways, just look up April 11th. Anyways, I find that hitting people up and just saying something nice, as long as you're being genuine, like kind of like you're listening to these bands before you talk to the people even. So if you know that they're sick before you even talk to them, you got something to talk about that is something that they care about. Exactly. Especially like if they already like know who you are and you're hitting them up, it means even more to them that you even took the time to check their stuff out. But like, I just love listening to new music and finding new things. So like if someone adds me and they're in a dope band, I'm just excited at the fact that I found a new band to listen to. Yeah. Regardless if, if I'm going to hit them up or even if we ever work together or not, like just discovering new music and making new friends is awesome. So I'm always going about it as, you know, as genuine as possible. Like if I hit you up, that means that I wanted to talk to you and I literally think your band is sick. I'm not blowing smoke. I think that that comes through. I think it really does come through. I would say that if people are trying to do this online and they're not getting results, like they find that they're getting ignored a lot, not getting anywhere with it, consider the approach. Consider how you must be coming off to people. Sometimes it's hard to know, really, because you can't see yourself from the outside. But the one thing that you can gauge is are people responding? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's like when people randomly hit me up or and like the only thing they say is, hey, with a question mark, or hey, can I ask you a question with no context of what they're hitting me up for? <laughs> like whenever that happens, I'm like, maybe you should like, you know, if you want to hit me up and you've never talked to me before, give me a little bit more than just that. And then maybe I'll be like more enthusiastic about talking to you instead of just being like, hey, uh, what do you want? (laughs) Those always make me a little nervous because... You don't know what you're getting yourself into. You don't know what you're getting yourself into. I get hit up by all kinds of people. So yeah, if you want me to respond, just come out and ask the question. Exactly. Yeah, don't make me wonder because, man, there are some people who will hit you up. Don't give me anxiety, bro. Yeah, it's a mistake to respond because they're going to lead you down a path that's just not good. Oh, my favorite thing though is every now and again I'll get somebody who hits me up with that, and then like they just like bombard me with like conspiracy theory. Oh, that that's good shit. Oh man, I love reading that, and then I'm like, oh really? That's interesting. Man, I can't think of a bigger turnoff when a, a new person starts sending me that stuff. I immediately check out. Oh, for sure. Like I, <laughs> I I entertain it for a little bit just to see like where it's going, and then like once it gets too weird, I'm like, okay. I hope you have a good night and good luck on your. Uh, conspiracies. I hope they work out. What I've noticed is that when I start making organic friends with people, sometimes it can take up to like five years or something before we work together, if ever. Yeah. It's been like that with a lot of people that I've gotten to know where I'm friends with them and we've never worked together when I wish we had worked together. But a lot of guys do have their go-to dudes already. So like, if someone I know has a go-to guy, especially someone I'm friends with, 
I don't even step on toes. Like if they want to work with me, they know have known me long enough to know what I do yeah. and like what I'm capable of. So if they're not interested, then I'm not going to push it. So, cause honestly, there's plenty of work out there for everybody. I think that it's very important to understand that. I think it's hard for people sometimes to be cool with that. Cause they so badly want work, but that starts to border on desperation and, uh, Desperation yeah. pushes people away. It does. Because as soon as you start coming off desperate or treating someone like they're a paycheck, if they feel like all you're hitting them up for is to make money off of them, they do not want to work with you just because it makes them feel gross. Yeah, that's something very interesting about the music industry where even though people are trying to make money, authenticity is like is currency. You have to come off as authentic you have to be authentic. And I have noticed that when people have ulterior motives, serious ones, they get sniffed out. I mean, this is the whole reason that, well, not the whole reason, but one of the main reasons for why people have managers is just to put a filter between them and people trying to get something out of them. And so most managers are professional no-sayers they're, because they're just conditioned to the fact that most people hitting them up are just trying to extract something from them. And so they kind of have to develop an ability to be able to tell who's genuine and who's not. And so they're like drug dogs looking for authenticity, basically. Yeah, for sure. And like you can immediately tell when someone's hitting you up, whether or not they actually are hitting you up because they want to talk to you or because it's literally business only. Yeah. It's so funny, man. Um, when I get like internship requests, which I still do, it's really interesting to me because I haven't recorded since 2014 and I'll get people wanting to come be my intern in the studio now. And it's like, I know because of the fact that you're sending this email, I know you would make a terrible intern because you're obviously not paying attention to who you're writing to. Because I've always thought that when you approach somebody, you should know who you're approaching. Same way that you'll listen to these bands before you talk to the person you know who they are. You know what they do. I think that that's such an important thing. If, if someone is approaching me for work and they don't even know that I haven't done it in six years, how are they going to be able to pay attention in the studio to the details, you know, to the details of the job? Yeah, exactly. Well, that, that's even like when like random band guys hit me up and they're like, yo, dude, you have a really sick wall of amps. Do you do you like record or something? I'm like, you really didn't look up anything on me before you hit me up. You literally just saw amps and said, yo, I got to hit this guy up because he's got amps. It's very, very lazy. The other thing that doesn't work is when people hit me up wanting a hookup, like a job, but all they will talk about is themselves. Like it'll be like three paragraphs that are like me, 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 me. I want this and I want that. And I'm awesome because of this and I want this and I want that. Can you give me a job? Job doing what? Anything, bro. I'll shine. Okay. It's like, all right, cool. <laughs> You've given me a lot to think about. I appreciate it. It happens a lot. Uh, do you get hit up with intern requests? Not a lot, but I do get hit up with intern requests. And I always turn them down because honestly, like, I can do pretty much everything on my own. So I don't really need an assistant or an intern of any kind. Like, I have zero problem talking shop with people. So if they want to talk about recording, I'm all about it. But Ever since my whole situation with my old partner, I've been pretty much like lone wolf status ever since. 
Do you ever see a scenario where you might take somebody? I think if I ever got to the point where I had enough incoming work to where I couldn't do it all on my own, then I probably would definitely entertain it. Got it. Between reamping jobs and mixing jobs, I don't really have any need for an intern or anything. I have like a few editing guys that I send stuff out to whenever I need editing work done just to kind of like take things off my plate. Okay, so you do get some help. Yeah, the only thing that I do is I send out some editing work. Other than that, everything else I do in-house. Man, I've thought this is one of the reasons that I think that recording schools are a fucking ripoff. The brick and mortar ones. Like one of my big missions with URM is to, you know, is to help people do this for real. Um, and also to get them to not waste $80,000 on something that's not going to help them. One of the main things I've noticed is that people who go to normal recording schools typically don't come out knowing how to edit, which is crazy because that is like the most... That's the biggest commodity in yeah. audio is editing. If you find someone who rules at editing... Keep them forever and keep hiring them. Absolutely. If you are cool enough to hang out with and you can edit, even if you're not cool to hang out with and you can edit, you're probably going to get a lot of work. Yeah, especially if you're really good and your turnaround times are excellent. Yeah, for sure. It blows my mind that people coming out with audio degrees aren't expert editors in vocals and drums and aren't like expert DAW operators. Yeah, honestly, that's like the biggest task that most guys have outside of making good source recordings is editing it and making it perfect. Yeah, totally. And then also knowing how to operate the DAW like it's like second nature or something. Yeah, it should basically be like muscle memory. You should know how to do everything on a DAW that you're comfortable working in. Yeah, exactly. So what I notice with these recording schools is people will take like the Pro Tools 101 or the certifications, but all they'll know are what the menus do. They won't. Yep. So they'll know like a hundred percent of the menu options, but they won't know the five to ten percent of the program that you need to be really proficient with in order to get the job done. So it's one of my missions to like create a generation of engineers who actually know this stuff and aren't in tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt hampering them. But like there you go. You're you're just kind of proving my point. You don't take interns, but the one thing that you do hire out for are edits. Yep. Editors are the most sought-after commodity for audio guys ever. If you're good at it, you're going to get hired. And you're going to get hired a lot, especially if you do really good work. Yeah. How did you discover your editors? Through other engineers, I'd hit them up and be like, hey, who do you guys hire out for edits? And then, of course, you know, being on uh, the URM job board... I would look up people who are offering editing jobs and hit them up and try them out just to see how they would do. If I don't need something edited, but I you know, have something I can send somebody to see if they're good or not, you know, I have no problem paying 35 to 50 bucks just to potentially find my next editing guy. That, that's awesome. So what's the criteria you're looking for? So you said quick turnaround. That's number one. Quick turnaround is definitely one of the biggest ones, but the main one is making things sound natural still. Like, for my own personal taste and uh, my way of mixing and production, like I like things to still feel natural, but be tight. Like I don't want things to be machine gun tight. So if someone can edit stuff to where it's tight, but still has movement, I'm excited about that. Yeah, which takes someone understanding music, I think. Exactly. Someone who can like vibe out with it and get the feel of the music. Like if it's moving still, you know this person really takes their craft seriously. 
What's key here, though, is that not every producer will ask for that. So an editor, a good editor, needs to be able to uh, do exactly what the producer wants. Some producers I know want the drums to be 100% perfect, and then they let the guitars and the bass be imperfect. Like I know people who are all across the spectrum as far as what they want out of those drums. And when they hire an editor, they expect the editor to do it exactly the way that they want it. And so the best editors I know can morph between styles, basically, from like what you said, where it's tight but natural sounding to where it's like 100% robotic, for instance. Yeah, because depending on the genre and the style of band, sometimes the 100% robotic is what's needed. But if you have a guy who can tell when that's needed, when it's not needed, that is invaluable. Like, you need that guy on your team. Yeah. And what kind of turnaround time to you do you think is fast? It depends on how many songs I send them. Like, if they're able to get me back a song every day, like, just like one, because most of the time it's just drum edits for me, because I usually I'll edit all my own guitars and bass. Mm-hmm. But for drum and vocal edits, um, if I can get a song back in a day, or even two songs back in a day, that's beautiful for me. But if they um, tell me they have you know, a lot of work already and that it might take a couple days, I, I always work around that so I can still get stuff done while I wait on them. So as long as they're upfront about it. Yeah, communication is everything. Like, If you're talking to anybody you're outsourcing work to, like, you have to be 100% one-to-one with each other on your communication. You have to know what they're doing. They have to know what you're doing. So everyone knows when you need your stuff back and be realistic with one another. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. Yeah, because if someone tells me, hey, I can get this back to you tonight, and then I don't hear from them for two days, I'm going to be really pissed off and probably never hire them again. Yeah, man, setting expectations. It's important in both directions, like both when you're hiring somebody, it's important to set the expectations in that they know exactly what's expected. But then the person getting hired needs to also set expectations that are realistic. So if you can't do it in one night, don't say you can. Exactly. Like if you're upfront about it and you let them know exactly like what your work schedule is like, most people are going to be really cool about that as long as they know. Like if you tell someone, hey, I'm going to get you this on this date and then you don't deliver and also you're not open about the fact that you're not going to be able to deliver on time, that irritates people and you'll probably get a bad rap from them that they'll tell their other friends like, hey, this guy said he was going to do this for me and he completely dropped the ball, especially if you do it multiple times. Yeah, so I've worked with John Douglas a ton and he would always do that, not drop the ball. He would always let me know uh, if you know he was overloaded and things would just take longer, always. I was never left waiting for something. No, nah, because as long as the communication is there, Everything goes smoothly because you you know what to expect. Yeah, exactly. I have definitely had people make promises and then totally just ghost and then send the stuff to me a week later and then wonder why I'm not hiring them anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, didn't I do good work for you? It's like, yeah, but you know, you kind of dropped the ball on me and I kind of needed this stuff when I said I needed it, not, you know, a week or two weeks after the fact. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff that I wish people came out of recording schools with, but uh, where did you learn this stuff? Just made sense to you or just... Yeah, it just made sense to me. And then just from, you know, trial and error, like fucking stuff up and making stuff suck made me learn what not to do. Yeah, makes sense. So just just from doing it, real world experience is how I learned everything. 
just by jumping in the deep end. And I've been doing it every single day for the last 10 years. I think that's the best way to do it. Yeah, because when you go to recording school, all you're leaving with is knowledge on recording. You're leaving with zero real world knowledge. Like you have no idea what you're going to be getting yourself into if you get thrown in the deep end of a real recording studio coming out of a school. Yeah, I think that a great engineer, whether it's mixing or producing or whatever, uh, is a professional problem solver. That's a big, big part of it. Aside from the creative vision and all that stuff, the problem solving aspect is major. And I'm not so sure that you can really simulate that. So even with URM students, man, I always tell them that if all they're doing is URM, they're fucking up. Like They got to be trying to do this in real life or else it's not going to help. Yep. Real world experience is where you're going to get all of your learning from. Like That's how you're going to grow is just by taking on projects, things not going the way they're supposed to and learning why those didn't go the way they were supposed to and how to make it better next time. Yeah. And then if you find techniques online or through another engineer, then you can incorporate those. You can see how to improve the way you work. But if you don't have a real world context against which to try that stuff, you're basically just doing it for entertainment purposes, in my opinion, which is fine if that's what you want. Yeah. But the best thing to do is just to stay open-minded. Like if you hear like somebody talk about a certain technique or like a certain product they use or anything like that, demo it, try it, see how it works in your workflow. If it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. But like, you don't have to try it just because somebody else does it and it's successful for them. If it's not successful for you, just keep trying things until you find things that work for you. Completely agree. Well, Phil, I think this is a good place to stop it. It's been awesome talking to you and catching up with you. Thank you for coming on. Oh, no problem, man. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you. No problem. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at Levy URM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.